What's up everyone? This is your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and this is a special edition of the podcast uh, because this is the top three most watched, most listened episodes of 2022. So I thought this would be a great way to wrap up the year of my podcast and YouTube show that I've been doing. And uh, the three that ended up being the top watched, top listened episodes was one uh, episode on low back pain. I think this was like part four. And uh, that was my most listened slash watched episode of the entire year, which is crazy, which also kind of points out how um, important it is to understand the mechanisms of injury. And for the most part, almost every single one of us, including myself, has experienced a little back pain in one time in their life. Um, but when you look at the statistics, um, low back pain happens out of one out of either every three people. It's probably a lot higher now since that initial uh, research study was conducted. So this episode is definitely going to help a lot of you. It's one of the newer ones that I've done. And also interesting enough is because I've talked about the low back pain before on my show, I actually compiled it all together. So if you search through my YouTube channel of low back pain, it'll say something like the ultimate guide to low back pain. It's like three hours long because I put together every single episode I've ever put out there on back pain and made it into one little like learning thing that you can um, watch, review, and hopefully get some understanding on why you're getting back pain and what you can do about it and what exercises not to do. Um, the second one is the complete joint by joint theory. Um, I've spoken about this a couple times because this is how I've been training clients for the last 10 years. Um, and it comes down to two people of Mike Boyle and Greg Cook who came up with this theory where certain joints are supposed to be stable, certain joints are supposed to be mobile, and then we should train them accordingly. So when you kind of take that idea and concept and apply it to uh, what you do in the gym, you end up realizing that you start feeling better, you can do more workouts in the gym, your capacity goes up, and most importantly, you're pain-free and you're not constantly, you know, babying an injury or staying away from certain exercises, it gives you um, a little bit more clarity and progression and success in the long term. So another compilation styled episode all together. And then the last one is an entire fat loss specific program that I put together for free for anyone to follow. So it's another compilation episode where I actually take my whiteboard um, and write out like, this is how I would program for um, a person um, based on, you know, if they never had any kind of major injuries, um, you know, they just started with me and I like worked out an entire phase of programming and you can literally just like copy it and use that as your next workout routine for 2023 and this entire episode that i'm talking about is three and a half hours long i think or more so it's a beast so 
I was originally going to put my top five episodes, but it was going to end up being like six hours long, and I don't think anyone has that kind of time. But at least this one, you can kind of, you know, piece it together, watch it all once or whatever it is. But uh, it's definitely filled with a lot of information, a lot of useful information based on how many times it's been listened and watched on my YouTube uh, channel and also my podcast. So I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to stop rambling, but um, I'm really, really grateful for every single one of you um, listening to my show, watching my show um, this past year. It's grown a lot. And I'm really excited for 2023 to continue giving you more and more and more stuff that's useful. Um, And looking back at previous episodes and realizing that I can just speak so much more on certain topics, are you going to start seeing me combining old episodes together? Because there's a lot that, you know, I can talk about on past topics that now I've kind of broadened my knowledge base on it. So keep your eyes and ears open for those new episodes. Also, if you haven't done so already, subscribe to my YouTube channel. We're past 550 subscribers, so my goal by the end of 2023 is to hit that 1,000 mark. So if you can help me by supporting the show, by subscribing, and then also adding me on Facebook and Instagram, because I also post a lot of other stuff that is super useful for yourself when it comes to training, nutrition, not so much nutrition anymore, but um, just training in general, mobility, how to get out of pain, and yeah, that's it. Thank you guys so much for this past year of support. Here we go, the top three most listened episodes in 2022. Here we go. What is up on my podcast listeners? This is your host, Rafal Matuszewski, and we are back to another great great episode as I try to figure out where to put my headphones because I don't like wearing them when I do this. Um, if you haven't done so already, my ebook, The Ironclad Body Training System Volume 2, is out. Holy shit. It's already, it's here. It's here, you guys. And I'm really excited because I've already had so many people purchase the book. I've had so many people reach out saying like, this thing is like the most amazing thing they've ever read or seen and you know it just it's a great feeling to know when you put out something people really enjoy you know the amount of effort you put in um (laughs) writing this book took me a long time but realistically it took a very short time based on some authors I know uh, when it comes to writing books and, but it was one of those projects where it just felt right. And uh, you know, over and over and over again, I just kept writing and writing and writing and writing. And, you know, here we are on my release day and I want to give a special shout out to every single person that's already purchased or at least, you know, opened up the website to go check it out. Um, So if you haven't done so already, the uh, show notes of this episode uh, we'll have the link to the website so you can like check out the book, what it's about, um, or you can watch my previous episodes um, where I talk about the book and, you know, see if it's a right fit for you. And if you've been listening to my podcast for years or just got onto it a couple months ago, you know, I produce a lot of free content that's literally some of the best stuff that you can get out there for free. 
Um, if there's one way to support the show and me, buying this ebook would be it. Um, again, I don't do any ads on my show. Uh, I probably will never do it because I just feel that why have you sit through a minute of a random company talk about insurance or whatever company decides to, you know, do ads on my show, then just listen to good fitness health advice. So yeah, my show's probably never going to have ads unless, you know, it was a company that I surely believed in and they wanted to sponsor the show, whatever. But uh, yeah, I literally make no money on this podcast. We're almost at 500 episodes, um, almost at a million listens worldwide. And I'm going to just keep going. You know, I'm going to keep going. A lot of podcasts out there, that's their livelihood. They do ads all the time. And, you know, I put in my time, I buy equipment, I edit all those things. Don't ask for anything in return. So this would be perfect if you guys want to support me and support the show. Uh, check out the ebook, purchase it. I'm going to send you a little thank you. Um, so let's get into the show today. So we're going to look at low back pain and how to find and kind of like figure it out. And I'm actually going to utilize my book because the one huge section in my book is figuring out your pain trigger, figuring out... Um, you know, what hurts and why. So we're going to look at a couple things that I actually also posted about um, maybe a month ago about low back pain. So this is going to be kind of like low back pain part four. And uh, I'm going to share my screen once again. And hopefully it works. Okay. Oh, it's already on the page that I need it to be. Perfect. So you guys, I'm in a good mood because I just want to crush life with you. Um, okay. So figuring out low back pain. So this is literally from my book. So you're also getting a little preview of what to expect. So um, this is in the assessment section and there is a lot, a lot of information here. And I always feel that, you know, I'm not a rep counter. I'm an educator about your body. So for many of us, and I've said this on my show before, we probably know more about our vehicles when it comes to maintenance and fixing them than we do with our own bodies, which is a pretty dangerous idea if you really think about it. And then we have the audacity to go to you know <clears throat> the gym and think that X, Y, and Z exercise is going to be beneficial to us. And I see this time and time again, because, you know, I'm the so-called rehab guy that also helps people with fat loss. I literally get people coming into me and in the assessment, they give me this long list of their injuries and car accidents and surgeries they've had, and they're going to the gym and everything always fucking hurts. And I put them through an assessment and I'm like, well, no shit that this exercise that you've been doing or this exercise you like because it burns your abs, whatever that means. Um, there's no surprise that people feel like shit after they work out when they were dealing with certain injuries. So my job really is to navigate people in the right direction where it comes to, you know, making exercise an individual thing. So one of the, 
great things about continuing education that I absolutely love is gaining more knowledge of how I can help people, right? So when I take a course or I look at a course, I go, oh, this seems interesting. I ask myself, is this course a selfish thing that I want because it seems interesting? Or is this course going to help provide a better service to my clients? I always choose the latter, that this course needs to be able to benefit my clients because really what makes me a better trainer than the guy or gal down the street is me getting you to your goal faster, right? So if I have a plethora of knowledge when it comes to pain and getting you out of pain, then I, I'm going to be with you for a while. Um, so the big thing when it comes to back pain is doing some compression tests. So a lot of times, um, something simple that you can do. So even before I get into that, if you have back pain, your number one step should not be, I'm going to find a trainer to get me out of back pain. Your number one thing to do is go find a physio or a chiro and have them do a thorough assessment to rule out other things that may be causing your back pain and then come listen and watch this and do these things. Again, this stuff is based on clinical practice that I've had and practice with, well, um, not practice, but um, experience with training people that are broken. So we're going to go look at the compression test for um, back pain. So in this little excerpt, expert excerpt, script, whatever writing thing that I have here. Compressive loads. So if you think of, I'm on a back squat, so I have this barbell on my back, compressive load. Um, people who press overhead, compressive load. Uh, people who, you know, power lift, do CrossFit, Olympic weightlifters, anything that goes overhead or lies down onto the back of the shoulders with the load it's going to have a compressive loading effect on the spine, which could also be, um, you know, the reason why you're getting back pain. And I see this a lot with CrossFitters here in the clinic where, you know, they've been training high volumes. Uh, maybe the last couple months, it's been a lot of back squatting and overhead pressing and they're wondering why they're getting back pain. Compression test is number one. So, um, in this video, let's click here to watch. So this is a cool thing. Um, with my um, ebook, every exercise that's in there has a video to it. So this is the compression test. So very simply, you go on the tippy toes and you slowly let yourself drop to the ground and that drop could recreate um, the pain, right? So a lot of times when it comes to figuring out your pain is how can I recreate it in a safe environment? And here I'm like full control. And like, I'm going pretty hard because I don't have back pain. I haven't had back pain in a while. So, you know, knock on wood, but 
when you do this and you're dealing with pain right at this moment, you kind of want to go kind of slow because you never know that kind of jarring, like compression test is not going to feel the greatest. So, you know, bear with me, go slow and soft. And um, so if this becomes positive, we are now getting closer to the reason why your back is getting, you know, effed up. Um, the big thing here is now we have some information to build a hypothesis, which I write in my book. Um, after we do this, um, you want to write down, this is the biggest thing with the low back pain too, is like you want to have a journal when it comes to figuring out your back pain, you want to start documenting everything you do. The more information you have, the better, um, um, the faster way you're actually gonna figure it out. So now that we've done our standing compression test, say it's a positive, there was some pain, you felt like the, oh, okay, it's there. So now we're like, okay, we know that compression is causing back pain, but now let's figure out if it's causing back pain posteriorly or anteriorly. Because sometimes your disc can go backwards or forwards depending where the compression is. So um, the seated compression test is kind of like step two to figure out uh, what the hell's going on with your back. So in this video, which, oh, what am I doing, guys? Oh, this is weird. Why is it not going? I'm not a big fan of uh, technology here right now. Okay. All right. So in this one, we are going to be in a seated position. Just like standing, we are going to pull with our arms, and you can see my facial expression that I'm pulling hard, to see if I can recreate pain, right? So this would be a seated upright compression test to see if I can recreate it. And then we're gonna also go into a slouched position and also pull. Say, for example, that we don't get any, you know, finding in that upright position pulling, but then we get a finding here and you pull and you get pain. Now we know it's gonna be a posterior disc issue because when you look at the spine, um, say this, my hand is the spine and we are going into flexion. So now all my discs on the outside of my spine are being pushed this way. And if you are like me and all the other people in this world right now, like this in front of their computer and doing Zoom calls and then you're like tired and you like lean back in your chair like this, your spine's in flexion. So now think about you sitting like that for eight to 10 hours or however long you sit in front of your computer. We have compression, compressional forces going into our spine placing um, pressure onto the disc in that forward flex position. So now our disc is gonna go this way. So a lot of times when I see low back pain and we do this seated compression test and there's pain, it's like, well, now we've figured out one of the mechanisms of why you're getting back pain. So now what do you wanna think about is 
Um, what positions could we um, kind of reverse that? So if we go back to my YouTube page, which if you have not subscribed to my YouTube channel, like, what are you doing? Come on now. What are you doing? You need to be subscribed because I post a lot of videos and I got some big stuff happening this year, which is going to make my YouTube channel very, very interesting. So get your shit together. Um, where are, actually, you know what I'm going to go through? Oh, look at that, everyone. That's my uh, website. Need to move this out of the way. Okay. So if we know that our bodies tend to fall into um, forward flexion a lot, what is the natural way to fix that? So if I'm spending all my time here, it would kind of make sense for me to spend more time here. So things like, sec, I'm gonna give you an example. That's not it. Mm. Trying to look for a T-spine exercise, but it's going to, Let's do this. And I also have to probably make this episode um, a little bit short because I'm running out of battery life here. All right, so what we're gonna do here is a foam roller extension. I have done um, an episode where I've gone over thoracic extension. So essentially you're trying to move just like in the video through our T-spine because a lot of times when we're here, we're placing compressive forces on the um, low back that's causing us that pain mechanism. So with the foam roller, like in this video, which is another reason why you should subscribe to my YouTube channel because I have all these tutorials to help, we're going to teach our body how to extend because a lot of times when we're here all these muscles back here are going to end up getting tight and they're going to want to stay that tight to kind of make you more efficient to stay in that so here i'm slowly extending my t-spine and how we start we actually keep the foam roller kind of the beginning of your uh, rib cage and do a couple reps there and then from there we're going to move down a little bit further we're going to further extend and then one more time at the very top, more extension. So when we train extension, we're teaching our body that we don't always have to be here. We're also relieving a lot of neural tension, meaning our nervous system that basically regulates our entire body um, to not stay kind of like this the entire time. And we'll kind of loosen up the grip a little bit. I always kind of, um, educate to my clients and trainers that your nervous system is kind of like an emergency break. Sometimes when we're constantly feeding our nervous system to stay tight, it's going to overly want to keep us there. And by doing thoracic extension exercises like this, then we're going to be able to kind of communicate back to the nervous system and be like, Hey, you don't have to be like this. You don't have to be in a straight jacket all the time. You can 
chill a little bit, you know? So with that, you also want to focus on some rotation, right? So a lot of times when we're here, like think about all these muscles across the upper T-spine. If we're always like this, they're also going to tighten up, which is also going to prevent us from ro rotating. So we need to also focus on uh, rotation. And I'm getting really nervous that my battery is not going to last. So maybe a little bit later, I'm going to have to um, uh, grab my charger. But we're going to look at one of my favorite T-spine uh, ro uh, rotation exercises. So again, this is in my book because over the years I have, you know, learned so many different exercises. <laughs> it was a little uh, blooper in the beginning I left in there, but um, we're going to be in a tall kneeling position and we're holding that block with the knees. They're going to be super wide. So then you can uh, make sure that the low back doesn't get in the way. Cause a lot of times when people are tight up top to rotate, they're going to try to use their low back. So the knees being uh, wide toes, digging in, squeezing the glutes, or it's going to lock out the lumbar spine with this block. We're going to be holding it together fingers interlace like that. So you can actually pull on it. So we're creating like some stability and tension. And from there, we're actually going to rotate right and left to focus on rotation. And really one of the best things about this exercise is as I rotate, I'm getting a good hip flexor stretch on that opposite hip. So like, as I rotate, like all of this stuff is also getting stretched, which is also the muscles that when I'm sitting, like this, they're being pulled into flexion and they're going to get really, really, really tight. So I always look at exercises where they kind of do two things at once, right? I want to do most bang for my buck to help people move more efficiently rather than just focusing on one exercise that maybe just focuses on one or two things. Like I want the whole system moving a lot better and why not find exercises to do that right so now that we have some guidance on where we need to kind of put our attention on when we are fighting kind of compressive loads in flexion we're also going to look at if there was a pain mechanism in extension so remember when we started we were doing that you know seated one pulling what if we had pain there maybe our disc is going anteriorly causing those compressive loads in extension. As we get into the next thing, I'm going to quickly grab my charger to make sure that this doesn't shut off. So I'll be right back. This is a first. literally the funniest thing that's ever happened, but kind of a side story. Um, I've had this laptop for five years and I've been getting messages that I need to uh, service my battery, but you know what? We're living on the wild side. Anyway, we're going to look at something called the extension test, the McKenzie extension test. So say if we found um, 
a positive result in our compression in an extended position. We're going to also do um, a couple movements to, you know, rule out if it's extension or not. So this is where kind of you becoming a detective um, for your own body. So, uh, bup, 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 bup. sure, let's just do this one. So the McKenzie protocol, um, you start off with getting into a prone position, meaning lying on your belly onto your face. And in that position, what we're going to do is lie down on our belly, just like so, hands on top of each other, forehead on top, my hair looks really good in this, um, forehead on uh, the hands. And what I'm explaining here is that you're also going to breathe. So the big thing of figuring out your back pain, particularly low back pain, is teaching, again, the nervous system to settle down. A lot of times when you get into positions like this, you might end up feeling tight, spasm, things like that. So that kind of gets me into the mindset of like, oh shit, maybe this is a compression um, issue and putting you into an extension pattern is causing that. So now we can kind of like figure out that the low back pain you're experiencing is based in extension positions. So this is kind of like the level one to kind of see if it's truly extension. So say if someone got into this position and I'm like, okay, I just want you to breathe like five deep breaths, focusing on your belly. And they're like spasming, they're cramping, like in all of this stuff here, maybe in the rib cage. Then that kind of tells me, all right, so you're probably doing a lot of overhead pressing, maybe some snatches and all that load is causing compressive forces into the discs and it's causing pain. Say, that this doesn't present anything. Let's just say that it actually feels good. It kind of gives you a little bit of relief. Then we're going to move on to kind of the next um, phase to truly rule out that extension is not the issue. So we get into something like the Sphinx position. And in this position, it increases the angle of extension onto your spine. So we're gonna go into full screen. So if you look at this now, and I'm still breathing, the angle of extension is far greater than if we were you know, hands on top of the forehead uh, type of position. So when we look at this with increased angle, it's gonna put more pressure and this could be where you actually feel um, pain. So now if I get a positive result, then it's like, okay, any like hyperextension is going to cause um, back pain. So I'm going to try to eliminate any, you know, um, position or exercise that will take me into extension. And sometimes when you think of like, say a barbell or like even a dumbbell overhead press, as you 
like get to like rep six, seven, eight, nine, or whatever you're aiming for, and you're starting to fatigue, what's going to happen is you're going to want to arch and go into that position. And even for myself, as I'm doing that, I can already feel all of this kind of getting fatigued. So in that case, simply taking out overhead pressing for a little while is probably going to clear up and settle down low back pain. Like it's not rocket science. It's very, very simple. So let's just say this was okay, maybe a little bit cramping, but not anything crazy. There's kind of stage three. So it's a simple Cobra um, stretch from like yoga to really rule out that, you know, um, extension uh, is not the cause. So if you look at this angle of how much extension I'm putting through my spine, if someone had back pain due to um, extension issues, this would for sure flare up. And shout out to me back in 2017 when I had long ass hair and owned a gym. This was my old gym, you guys. This is pretty cool. Um, so sometimes uh, the reason why you want to go through all these three progressions is that when we're dealing with pain, our bodies are really good at masking it, hiding it, and our bodies learn to adapt to movements. So the big thing is you want to rule it out as much as possible. And all we did was take you through different um, positions um, to ensure that it's an extension thing. So no matter what, all those three options are going to point towards that you are most likely dealing with like an anterior disc herniation or a bulging disc because you're doing too much stuff in this position in your workouts. How often does that happen? For me, it's usually when I'm dealing with a CrossFitter, Olympic weightlifter, or powerlifter who does, you know, heavy loads in that extension pattern. I would say nine out of 10 times I get people in, you know, flexion stuff. So funny enough, when it comes to people with extension stuff, I want them to do more flexion stuff. So what is good flexion? Because, you know, if you've been following my work, you kind of know um, how I'm anti-crunches, which is lots of flexion. Um, but something as simple as a child's pose and this is going to be a video of my wife, because for a while there, she did some uh, videos for me. And this also dates how old this video is, because, like, look at, look at the size of this image. This was, like, probably when I had my iPhone 4 or 5. But uh, if you look in this position, we actually have some good curvature of the spine, and that's going to, one, provide some relief if you're that extension-based person. And also, we're also teaching the body how to uh, down-regulate all that stress. So remember how I said our nervous system is kind of our regulator to pain? And if I am constantly like this, what does every yogi in the world tell you to do is breathe. Every time you use our diaphragm, not the breathing muscles up here because we're stress breathing, the stuff down here in our belly we stimulate the vagus nerve, which is um, responsible for settling down all of your stress. 
So if I can get you in a position where it relieves tension off of those extended positions, and on top of that, throw in diaphragmic breathing that's going to kind of supercharge it, like that's my another example of choosing exercises that do more than just one thing. And this is why so many people need to learn more about their body. And this is why, again, I'm a huge advocate about my book because when I started writing this, I was like, okay, what can I um, put into this book to help people as much as possible? And I always go back to figuring out pain because all of us have had it, figuring out what to do about it, and then what exercise should I be doing and not be doing? And in this book, you're going to get all of that, right? So it's kind of like a manual for your own body. And then it teaches you how to use it, right? It's like when you get, I don't know, a brand new car and you're like, here's your big ass manual of all the functions. Like I can imagine if someone got like a brand new Tesla, the amount of freaking buttons and options you have for that thing um, would come with a pretty big, um, you know, uh, manual of what to do. So I really hope that this episode kind of gave you some clarity about figuring out your low back pain with compression tests. Um, if you need more information, feel free to reach out, but better yet, just get my ebook, you know, yes, I am selfishly plugging my book, but this is something that everybody could benefit from. If you need more information about my book, like go to my website, um, let's see if I can mute myself, theironcladbody.com, and you'll be able to get a little preview of what it is. It's on sale right now for $57. It's a 42% discount, and I'm only having that sale for one week. So as of this recording on Saturday, which is like February 4th or 5th, whatever it is, it's going to $100, and that's going to be the um, standard for the whole year. So don't hesitate if you are considering getting my book because you don't want to wait until it's a hundred dollars and you're like, fuck, I could have had a sweet discount. Um, if you have any more questions, I had other, um, videos about my book. Uh, I think two episodes ago, there was like a full on FAQ of, common questions I got from people online. Uh, shout out again to all the people who've bought my book already. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hit the show notes, add me on Facebook, add me on Instagram, uh, subscribe to my YouTube channel and hit the show notes to buy my book, the ironclad body training system volume two. That's it for me. You guys, I'm going to stop this screen share and stop this episode until next time. You guys, what's up my podcast listeners. This is your host for family and this is another uh, compilation uh, episode that I've been doing the last couple of weeks because, as you know, I'm almost at 500 episodes for this podcast. And a lot of the topics I've spoken about in either intertwine with each other or they um, are the same topic and I just went a little bit more in depth or added a thing or two. And I want to start putting them together so then it's not just bits and pieces. So then it's one coherent thing to give you more value. And, you know, doing these little like intro videos kind of opens the door for the topic or whatever it is. 
Um, but today what we're going to go over is kind of this joint by joint training model that uh, Mike Boyle and Gray Cook put together. And I looked through my episodes where I talk about the joint by joint approach, um, joint health, and you know, functional anatomy, because it all intertwines together. So when we look at the body, it's more than just, you know, my elbow does skin extension and flexion. It influences more tissues. Even though I'm doing a bicep curl, my shoulder is involved, my pecs are involved, my neck is involved, my core is involved. There's just more. There's like a global effect. And that's something that I think I will end up talking about, um, which is this theory and concept that Dr. Andrew Spina speaks about, about uh, bioflow anatomy. And maybe I'll do a whole separate you know episode on that because it's a pretty, pretty lengthy um, topic and a lot of stuff to break down. But I think this episode in particular is going to be very, very valuable when it comes to learning how to train pain-free. And, you know, yes, my podcast is, you know, Cut the Shit, Get Fit. And ideally, you'd think that I'd be talking about weight loss. And I do on my show a lot. But in order to be successful at weight loss, you need to be able to put your body into um, a gym setting more and more and more um, without days being taken off because your knee flared up or your you know shoulders being sore and now you can't do any upper body motions and you try to do lower body workouts and then your legs get too sore and you have to take time off and you know I've done the math and I've done um, an episode on this where you know if I took someone who does you know one day a week consistently throughout the whole year they will end up with more workouts than a person trying to do three days a week um, you know, throughout the year going, you know, really, really consistent and then dropping off, being really, really consistent and dropping off. So, you know, being able to have more time exercising pain-free will indirectly get you to, you know, the success you want to see when it comes to fitness, health, weight loss, whatever it is. And that's why I'm a huge advocate of joint health, making your joints move better, finding exercises that do you know more good than harm to your body because there's a lot of shitty exercises out there and people keep doing keep doing them and a lot of people don't know any better and end up being in a position where everything fucking hurts and you know working in a clinic I see people that have been so consistent in the gym and then end up coming in completely broken. They have no idea why. And then you do an audit of the exercises they're doing. And like, you're like, well, yeah, no wonder. Like your shoulder is only able to do this and you're pressing overhead and you've been doing that for like years. Like no wonder your freaking rotator cuff and everything else, your anterior shoulder is fucking pissed off and it's literally just seizing up and it's not going to allow you to do anything. So I'm a huge, huge advocate on moving better, feeling better to be able to do the things that you want. And weight loss is one of them. Um, I really just want this podcast to provide as much value as possible when it comes to these topics. So I'm going to go down this rabbit hole of going through all my episodes and compiling them together. So you have one solid resource and, you know, podcasts that are like longer than my 15 minute uh, quick ones 
And, you know, the nice thing is, like, on the weekends when I do these longer episodes, um, start putting them together. So eventually we're going to start seeing some episodes that are two to three hours long. So um, I just want to give, 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 give. And, you know, my podcast is almost at half a million listens um, since I started. And I think I'm going to hit that probably by the end of this month, which is huge. And, you know, a little update on my book. Um, really finishing touches and putting all the you know photos of the exercises in and then I gotta go figure out how to print this thing and sell it off onto the internet but um, let's get this episode started we're gonna start with an episode on functional anatomy and then talking about um, if you have a functional joint and then the last one is gonna be a 40-ish minute episode about um, the joint by joint theory where we do a whiteboard session of what that looks like and do a terrible job drawing a stick figure, so bear with me. But it should be a really good episode all put together. So that's it for me. Let's get into this episode. Here we go. We're going to talk about some more functional anatomy because on my Facebook, I've been posting a lot about <clears throat> certain muscles that play huge roles in how our body 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 moves in a functional matter you know like before in anatomy classes cadavers and things like that a lot of times um, when they wanted to look at the function of the muscle so an example is like the bicep they would cut open the cadaver take away all the fascia take away all the connective tissue, take away all the crap that is layered on top and in between and whatever it is around the bicep in order to move it. So if you imagine if you had a body just lying there with their arms straight out by its side, they would take a little thing to pull the arm to show that the bicep was contracting like a bicep curl. Right? And they would just pull that string back and forth and they're like, oh, that's what the bicep does. But your arm, like your bicep that crosses over from the shoulder joint and the elbow joint can do a lot of things, right? Not only does it do bicep curls from like a lying anatomical position, but you can put your shoulder into forward flexion. So if you had your arm out in front of you and then also curl, you can also bring it up towards the ceiling and also curl, right? You can have your arm out to the side and also curl. You can go into so many different positions with the forearm itself and pronation and supination while doing curls and all those different things. So really, functional anatomy is not just one motion. It's not just one movement that an exercise can do. Your body can do a lot of different motions. But then if you go within the construct of what exercise is, right, which are movements that were created, say, 40 years ago when they first started, not even probably 40 years ago, probably 60 or 80 years ago, when they first started looking at movements and muscles and how things like that are connected together, right? So we're kind of leaving a lot on the table when it comes to traditional exercise. And this is where, like, again, I'm biased, but I feel like kin stretch and the FRC principles fit here really, really well. 
So it doesn't mean that you should stop doing bicep curls and crap like that. I'm just saying that you need to think that our bodies are designed to do more than just bicep curls. But if you restrict the you know, potential that our bodies can do, then you leave a lot of stuff on the table, a lot of stuff that can go wrong, and then this is where I think leads to injury, right? So one of the muscles that I wrote about, I think this morning or yesterday morning, I can't remember what day it is anymore, is the serratus anterior. So when you look up the serratus anterior, anterior online or anything like that, anatomy books, you know, you'll know that it's kind of on the side of your rib cage and when you're super lean and jacked like Hugh Jackman and Wolverine you'll be able to see those bad boys pop out a good functioning um, stratus anterior allows movement of the scapula going forward so if I brought my arm in front of me and started going as far forward as possible with my shoulder blade that's on my serratus anterior so if you think about people doing like scapular push-ups that's serratus work right there right in order for my shoulder blade to do that that muscle has to function properly and then allowing the shoulder blade to move forward like that in that protracted position it also laterally glides to the side when that happens that allows your arm to go completely overhead to do things like overhead pressing, throw a ball, throw a baseball, like things like that. So that serratus anterior is actually really, really, really important. When that thing doesn't function the way it should, bad things happen like people get tight necks, people have rotator cuff issues, people can get numbness going down their arm, people can also have bad circulation from that and things like that. So when you think of it that way, this little muscle is very vital to a lot of things and it's hard to say like do this one exercise and your serratus anterior is going to work like a charm it's tough to say that because everyone's a little bit different we don't know everyone's history that's listening that might be causing that serratus to not be working properly like maybe some people have some mechanical or neurological tension in their body that's preventing their arm to go forward or have that scapular glide or maybe someone has so much laxity in their shoulder joint that the serratus can't actually control and it's all over the place or maybe someone doesn't have correct breathing patterns that is preventing the serratus from activating the way it should right there's a lot of things that influence each other. And this is what goes back to my first point about the whole idea of um, the bicep is more than just curls and crap like that. Like it can move and influence so many other joints and muscles that require that uh, positioning. So that being said, the serratus can be influenced by so many other things, right? So this is where I kind of go back like, if you are working with a trainer and they haven't assessed you from the very beginning without any kind of like movement, you know, assessment or anything like that, they're leaving a lot on the table that they don't know about your body, right? That's like going to a doctor and they don't look at your charts at all 
and then just start prescribing you shit, you know? Or better yet, going to a doctor, not telling them your symptoms, and then they write you a prescription, right? And this is where there's a lot of gray area because it's like, we all know exercise is good for you, right? And it's gonna show some benefit. You going to the doctor and then prescribing a painkiller that's a low-level entry one to help you with your issue is probably going to help you with whatever issue you have without even explaining it. But you don't know if that medication, that drug, is going to contradict you on other medications or it's going to make your stomach feel like shit and you start barfing and shitting yourself all day. So exercise is kind of the same thing. Like we all know, squats and lunges and mountain climbers and burpees are exercises. They make you sweat. They make you, you know, move. They make you supposedly feel better and you'll get the benefits of exercise on a cellular level and all that. But what if you have a weird hip of some sort and squats, lunges, and burpees hurt them, right? So this is why it's so vital to have an assessment beforehand to figure out why your body moves a certain way. Again, you can only do so much online, but if you're a good practitioner, a good trainer that has a lot of rehab experience, aka like me, you we can try to actually pinpoint what it is, right? And a lot of times, training's not that complicated. Does this movement hurt? Yes, don't do this movement, do this instead. Does that feel better? Yes, okay, we're gonna do it this way. Like, that's all it really is, right? So, considering that serratus, um, concept I can do scapular push-ups say I'm in a bird dog position hands and knees and I'm doing scapular push-ups and I notice the person oh my camera tilted forward um, can retract meaning squeezing their shoulder blades together no problem but the moment they try to protract they actually can't move their shoulders in front of them and they end up rounding their entire back Right? That tells me most likely their serratus is not moving properly. But then, say I get them standing and do scapular cars and they have a better understanding of how to move their shoulder blades into retraction. Right? Pretty much two of the same movements, just a little bit different, but now I have more bang for my buck when it comes to creating more adaptable tissue surrounding the shoulder and the um, scapula that is influenced by the um, serratus. So now I'm going to gear towards using um, exercises like scapular cars to get that thing moving the way it's designed. Now the other thing that I didn't bring up is that the serratus is actually um, also influences the rotator cuff. So if you look at the dynamic of how the rotator cuff works and what it's responsible to do, the serratus plays a huge role in allowing those tissues surrounding the, uh, that consists of the rotator cuff vastly, right? So now you see how these things connect in our body so much, and this is why when you start isolating muscles, um, sometimes it's not the best approach when it comes to training. So, long story short, look at the body as one unit. 
look at the body as not segmented parts, but one part influences the other. If one part is stronger or more flexible, whatever you want to use, then it's going to have kind of a waterfall effect and it's going to spill into other uh, buckets. So with the serratus, there's so many things that you can do for that specific uh, muscle, but at the same time, you're going to influence other things. So this is where exercise selection comes in um, handy, right? So yes, you can do scapular push-ups, but maybe you also need some shoulder stability work that also affects the serratus. So one of my favorite shoulder stability exercises is the kettlebell arm bar. And hell yes, I think when you get someone into a kettlebell arm bar, for sure, you're also stimulating that serratus anterior to function a little bit better. If I get someone breathing in so many different positions, prone, supine, side-lying, bird dog position, dead bug position, hell yes, I'm influencing the serratus anterior. Now, if I have five exercises in my program, say in my warm-up, for example, that will not only influence the serratus anterior, but all the other things it like connects to, then my programming becomes basically bulletproof for the individual, and then that's where you see progression, right? So this is why I really, really enjoy learning about functional anatomy, is that now I can kind of create a better map in my head about my client and what they need and how to improve their performance and movement. So long story short, think of your body as one unit. Think about the one muscle that your physio or chiro said, you need to fire this thing, and think about all the surrounding muscles that it might influence and also attacking those. And that's gonna help you tenfold. All right, that's it for me. I'm gonna stop it there because I feel like I can talk about this forever. Um, and today, I feel like it could be a little tangent, rant, or whatever you wanna call it. Um, about I don't even know how I'm going to start this but here's the thing I see this all the fucking time people come in and start lifting heavy shit and things start hurting not in a good way you're not like sore from a workout it's more so my joint hurts my muscle over here hurts what the hell's going on? So an example of this is, say your typical person that sits all the fucking time, um, does that five days a week at work for eight to 10 hours, and then sits at home because they're tired of sitting at work, and then they do some more sitting over the weekend, because they're tired from the sitting at work and their hip starts changing structure because it, like again, our tissues adapt to the stress that we place on it. So it realizes that, hey, you don't ever extend your hip other than standing. So any further extension that you need, I'm gonna take away because it's useless for you. 
And then you go to a gym and you place a barbell on your back and you try to do some barbell squats. Since your hip can't extend the way it should, that barbell squat is not actually any, not giving you any kind of benefit to your body because you're now squatting without a hip. Your hip is not acting like a hip should. So why would you place forces that require extension in your hip when there is no extension? Over time, you're putting stress into a tissue that can't adapt to it compared to a hip that has full extension. Eventually the tissue yields and ow, my hip has a pinch every time I do this thing. Right? This is what happens. Let's take it a step further. If you are a person living in this century, your shoulders are pretty much fucked as well. So now you go to the gym and you take a barbell and start driving it up over your head. And then your shoulder hurts. Your physio says it's your rotator cuff muscle. It's your capsule. It's your whatever. It's not working the way it should. And then you wonder why it's not working the way it should when you're placing force and load into a joint that's not an actual joint. So when I teach other coaches or my patients how a joint works, and I hope people listening, people watching will get this a little bit easier, is that if I have two bones side by side like this and I am facing both knuckles towards each other and there's a space in between. And now imagine my right hand and my left hand mirroring each other and say if I take my right hand and lift my uh, right elbow towards the ceiling, that's my joint moving in space and time. With the space between the two bones, which are my fists, think of a surrounding globe. Think of our earth, our beautiful earth that is engulfed through that, and that's our joint capsule. It's a bunch of tissue that surrounds the joint that allows movement. So if you imagine as I'm moving my elbow up towards the ceiling, and think about that's your shoulder going up. As my um, bone goes up, the surrounding capsular tissue has to be pliable enough to move along to give you that range. So if you think of like one of those stress balls that you squeeze, like imagine if you did a stress ball right in the middle of your hand and you squeeze as hard as possible, it's going to start pushing out in other directions. So now imagine if you just take half of the squishy stress ball and then you squeeze, it's going to come out all into one side. And that's essentially how our joint capsules work in order for our joints to move effectively. If that joint capsule doesn't allow that movement, what will happen is, if I'm looking at the camera, um, my right hand and left hand will eventually collide and pinch. And that's where people will be like, oh, I get this pinch in my left hip every time I squat at this depth. That's what's happening on the inside of your hip. Your two bones that make up the joint are coming together 
and they're like the joint capsule won't work. So at another level of this idea of when people don't have a hip or shoulder, their capsule is dysfunctional. Like it doesn't work the way it should. So then I go back to my old saying that I've done the last two years is that you're building strength over dysfunction. Like if you don't have a healthy capsule for your hip, your shoulder, your wrist, your elbow, whatever the fuck it is, why do you think it's a good idea to place load that is supposed to move a certain way with a healthy joint, right? You got to remember, like, think about Olympic weightlifters. They have really good joints. They're able to squat ass to grass, which means they have really good knee joints, really good ankle joints, really good hip joints. And on top of that, really good shoulder joints to place a barbell on their back to go into that deep squat or a front squat position. Like their joints are built for those types of movements. But then you take a general population person that decides to join a CrossFit gym or a gym that wants to be a CrossFit gym without the name to be whatever person, some special gym that thinks they're better than CrossFit gyms. And a regular person starts doing these things with no like prerequisites of what a joint is supposed to be like. And then you wonder, why does my shoulders always hurt? Why does the inside of my elbow always hurt? Why does my hips click, crack, whatever it is? It's because you don't have a full functioning joint, right? So many of us want to exercise and, you know, get the benefits of exercise and do classes and do um, whatever activity you can think of. But if your joints can't even do the bare minimum of physical everyday life why do you think placing external loads and forces that go beyond those ranges is a good idea right an example of this is people who decide to go running to lose weight when they haven't exercised since high school and it's been about two decades for sure that person doesn't have enough ankle range of motion enough knee stability produced by the hip they probably don't have a hip. They have terrible core activation, so they can't stabilize their lumbar spine. And then after their first run or two, they're like, I have shin splints, my feet hurt, my knees have pain, and my low back is killing me. That is one of the greatest examples that I give to coaches and to people when it comes to them trying to achieve fitness and health um, you know, goals. So we all need to kind of focus on the basics. Like exercise is an interesting thing because so many people um, skip the basics. They skip steps one through five and end up at 27. When everything else in life, like <laughs> a, makes sure that you has to like go through a step-by-step -step process. And it makes no sense to me that people would follow this kind of logic. Now, when it comes to exercise again, by skipping these steps, when you don't have a shoulder or a hip, you're leading yourself to injury. And again, I always, again, I tell patients all the time, it might not happen tomorrow, might not happen a month from now, might not happen from six months from now, 
but maybe in a year or two, you decide to go grab a sock off the ground and your entire back explodes and tells you to F right off because that tissue has yield, yielded the maximum amount of force it can take because of your shitty hip mechanics or shitty shoulder or whatever it is and now you're sitting in a physio office or a chiro office trying to figure out what the hell happened, right? This is why like the chiro I work with, Sarah and myself have joined forces together because what a chiropractor does and what a trainer does has to coincide. So if I know I get a client that has terrible shoulders and hips, I'm not gonna give them overhead pressing and deep squats when they have no business doing it, you know? So to kind of wrap this up, because I can like rant on this for like a full hour, you need to reassess your body's mechanics. You need to see where you're at. Like, it's something as simple as like, should you be taking blood pressure meds? I don't know, maybe you should check your blood pressure by a professional and then they can determine whether or not you need it. So exercise is the same thing. Do I have a hip or a shoulder? I don't know, get assessed by a professional and then determine what exercises you should be doing or not doing, right? It's like that simple. But for some reason people have this idea in their head is that they move like a gymnast, they move like a body should, but we don't. Like we don't live in a world anymore where our body should move the way it should. You know, like back in the day before what we have now, your body could run for its life because a cougar was running after you. You know, back in the day, you could climb a mountain to go find whatever you were finding or getting out of danger or pulling yourself up because there was a flood coming. Like, I don't know, like our bodies were designed to do those things, but now living in a world that we do, our body has adapted to no activity and it wants to keep us there. So, man, that was a good rant. Follow the basics. Like literally everything in life, when you master the basics, you will succeed. So you can apply that to so many different facets of whatever you're trying to do in your life. So when it comes to exercise, make sure your shoulder acts like a shoulder. Make sure your hip acts like a hip. If, and then you can do that for every single joint. If it doesn't act the way it should, then you're gonna run into problems down the road. And it's just a matter of time before you go, holy shit, my back is effed. What the hell happened, right? It's good to like investigate what's going on with your body. Like, we live in these bodies every single day of our lives, so it would make sense to understand it a little bit. And that's why I think my patients are doing really well during this pandemic when both myself and Sarah the Cairo can't see because we've given them all the tools and education to understand what's going on with their body. Like we literally don't really have that many patients that are in dire need of treatment because they have reached out to us. We kind of refresh their memory of what exercise they should be doing and they have access to all these things and they've been putting in the work and they're actually getting better to a certain degree. So really reassess focus on the basics, make sure your joints actually work the way they should, you'll be good to go. Have an awesome weekend, you guys. I love you all. Until next time. What's up, podcast listeners? It's your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and today is a 
special edition of the podcast because I am actually recording from my place. So for those who are listening, this is still going to be um, beneficial to listen, but highly, highly recommend you go to my YouTube channel. I'll place the link in the show notes because we're gonna go into a whiteboard session with my terrible drawing of a human. Hopefully you can see that. And I will improve on these as we go along, but um, we're gonna go over the joint by joint approach. I've spoken about this a little bit before, but we're gonna go really in depth um, since we have the whiteboard. Um, hopefully I am in frame. Uh -huh. We're gonna go over basically head to toe of what the joint by joint approach is. So the joint by joint approach was kind of coined by Mike Boyle and Greg Cook. If you guys don't follow those two guys, highly recommend you do. Um, essentially what they kind of put together is that some joints are supposed to be stable, some are supposed to be mobile. And I will say there are some, you know, things that the joint can be both stable and mobile and it's like almost up to um, your kind of inter interpretation of it and that, that's literally what all of this all training is. It's like, you know, you can follow somebody and they create this method of training based on research but really it's their interpretation of the literature, right? And you know, joint by joint approach is just a theory. And as long as you understand the rules, then that's when you can start blending and bending things. And I think this will kind of demonstrate that um, really, really well. So um, we're gonna start, maybe I should use a different color. I'm gonna use a different color. So I'm gonna draw a little circle. So this guy, the neck joint needs to be stable. I'm just gonna go S so I don't have to constantly write stable. So if you think of the neck joint, um, the last thing you'd want is a lot of mobility in that neck joint because then you would have higher chances of injuring it. It makes sense that your neck should be stable. Right now a lot of times when people come into the clinic and they have pain, um, a lot of times they need a little bit more um, strength and stability in the neck. And a lot of times when you look at our, you know, day-to-day -day life, we all sit all freaking day long. We are hunched over. And funny enough, I was watching uh, an old video of me, like my wife and I use an app called uh, TimeHop that um, filters all of your photos and posts that you've done since however long ago your phone has been <laughs> with you and a couple of years ago my wife was filming me at my desk and I was like holy shit my posture is terrible so I can only imagine like if you're watching literally like this you know for someone like me that's in the fitness industry that knows a lot about posture and uh you know functional training, functional joints and things like that, um, I thought I would do a little bit better. Um, so that being said, um, 
I can only imagine how terrible the general population would feel if they're sitting in that position, especially now during COVID, where everyone's working from home. Like, just, just terrible things. So, um, the neck should be a stable joint. So, a lot of times, it's just learning how to stabilize it with another exercise. So, one exercise I really, really, really like, and we can actually do this. Um, we can start listing off exercises. So, something... Um, we can, oh, I'm going to go through a whole rabbit hole here. Um, we're going to go through like progressions and regressions on how to build neck stability. So there's something called a three month prone exercise from DNS. Um, and essentially you'd be lying in a prone position and all the DNS stuff is something I really, really want to get into, but I've read into it a lot, um, is essentially finding the ways that a baby would develop and utilizing different positions from the developmental stages to kind of reset the nervous system or strengthen certain aspects of the body where it naturally occurs in um, developmental stages as a child. So the three-month prone um, press-up, as I call it, um, is essentially you're in a prone position, arms out in front, and it kind of mimics like if a baby was on their belly, and as they learn to roll over and move, they're using their head to rotate left and right. And a lot of times, if you think of us sitting in a desk, we're here constantly. So being in that prone position, now we're adding extension to our thoracic spine, lumbar spine, everything. And now we're learning how to um, protract and retract our scaps and also go into that kind of like pack neck position. Um, and I really, really, really like utilizing that exercise. Um, another thing to build stability at the neck, um, again, this is also, this is where we're gonna blur lines, but um, neck cars so when i teach neck cars it is a mobility exercise but at the same time when i really think about it in order for you to put your head into flexion extension and lateral rotations i think you almost need some sort of stability in order to do those motions so it kind of blurs some lines there but if i'm going through a progression um type of aspect on this then neck cars would be kind of the next thing. And now, another thing I would throw in here is the Turkish getup. Um, if you think about that first position lying down on uh, the ground and kind of coming across the body, that rolling pattern, right, um, requires a lot of neck stability. And I really like having that position where someone's lying supine because it's also teaching how to place the head in a more neutral position. And when I coach the Turkish getup, I tell people like, as you get set and you're about to roll over, I actually want you to push into the ground to find that neutral position to create a little bit more joint centration. And again, these terminologies that I'm bringing up like joint centration, I have created, um, podcast episodes on this, so look back. Um, and other stuff that people don't think about is like, 
Oh, I went with the wrong color. Um, like anything with a TRX when like just TRX rows in general. So when you think about um, on the way down, in order to hold that position on TRX row and pulling yourself up, like all the stuff in your neck has to stabilize so that you just don't pop back or anything like that. So things where you're you know, on lying down and you have to support your neck are gonna be great ways to stabilize the neck joint. Another one that people don't think about is like hip thrusts. So if you're doing a proper hip thrust, um, the motion where say if I'm starting, I'm in that seated position and as I'm driving up and I'm here and my, I'm not resting my head on the bench or box or whatever you're using, I'm holding it for a split second and then coming back down. So there's that repetitive nature of stabilizing the neck. Um, I think I'm gonna stop it there because I could go into so many different directions on the neck and we haven't even like gone down a little further and I'm gonna periodically check my phone like I did earlier and there's that awkward um, quiet space but I want to make sure that uh, my phone doesn't shut off or anything um, okay so let us go should have drew this a little bit better but we are going to circle and again hopefully you guys can see this right in the t-spine so I'm gonna do it like this so t-spine <laughs> needs to be a mobile joint so if you think about the design and like if you go take an anatomy course or studied anatomy um, and you look at the biomechanics of each single joint um, that can also give you a clue to what you should be uh, focusing on and if you look at the thoracic spine um, it needs to be a mobile joint because if you look at how much rotation, especially, that a thoracic spine can utilize is about 45 degrees. And a lot of times, going back to that first example where our, everyone's sitting, especially now during COVID, this eliminates the ability to rotate left and right and working with the general population and even like people that are gym goers that are kind of, I would call them like meatheads where you know, it's like bench, back squat, bicep curls, chest all day, every day, and they end up getting really, really um, stiff thoracic spines. So it is imperative for the human body to have adequate thoracic um, mobility. And some of the stuff that I like to do, um, and I feel like I can also, start showing exercises. So just any T-spine exercise, any T-spine that um, promotes not only rotation, but also extension and flexion. So you guys have probably seen so many things that I've posted, but things like rib rolls, open books, arm sweeps, anything that opens out um, thoracic um, section of the body, um, I also like using foam roller extensions. That helps a lot. I also 
like using a bench in front and going into thoracic um, extension in that position. Stole that from the powerlifting community. I think I saw it from Eric Cressy. Um, just get that T-spine moving. T-spine cars as much as possible. Like just anything that will prov uh, promote rotation, extension, adequate flexion. And again, I don't really train that much flexion for the T-spine because we're already here. I don't feel that we need more. I feel like we need more extension-based stuff and not through the lumbar. So as long as I can get that thoracic um, spine moving a lot better, it kind of trickles into all other things. So here's an example, and I will go back into this. So. If the thoracic spine, for some reason, um, doesn't move as well, everything else has a kind of like a magnifying effect where everything else stays tight. The moment that this section of the body starts moving a little bit better, now the neck can move a little bit more freely. Because if you think about, you know, our bodies being one unit, um, it will influence other things. So if I have a little bit more movement through here, for sure, if you think of like the stuff in our neck that connects down to the same area, it probably has a line of tension that could get released and things will start moving better. And again, I'm checking to make sure, yeah. Um, I don't know why I was kneeling down that so long. So again, we've, I've covered so much T-spine stuff um, maybe I'll do a post. Um, actually, I think that would be good. I'm gonna create a post actually with all my thoracic extension and rotation exercises that you can start utilizing to improve T-spine motion. Um, but now we're gonna move on to the shoulder joint. And honestly, the shoulder joint is one of my favorites. And this is where the shoulder itself, if you look at it as one whole unit, it needs to be both mobile and stable at the same time. So this is one of those ones that I was saying that breaks a rule. But if you look, break it down a little bit further, the glenohumeral joint where the humerus goes into the glenoid, um, that needs to be mobile in order to go into flexion and rotate. And I'm just doing a simple shoulder car. That glenohumeral joint needs to be super mobile, but the shoulder blade needs to be stable. If you have a super mobile shoulder blade, it's going to kind of float all in weird stuff. And that's where you get a lot of issues going down the road. So overall, the shoulder joint needs to be both mobile and stable in my opinion. But if you start breaking it apart, then that's where you can have clear lines at glenohumeral joint, um, mobile, and scapula needs to be stable. So a couple things with this guy. If I had to start picking exercises, and let's go with what we'll probably do two categories. Um, We'll go with mobility first. Hopefully you guys can see this. Um, and if you can, you can probably just zoom in on your end. Um, I always go with the shoulder car. So 
when you look up a definition of like a joint or even better yet, if you have to figure out um, how to keep a joint healthy, you need to make sure that articulation moves, right? So if I, again, sit all day and don't let this shoulder move beyond me going onto my laptop, grabbing a cup out of the cupboard, certain points of that joint is not going to be as healthy compared to, you know, me moving it constantly in all these different positions. So if you kind of think about it in the sense that the moment you add movement, like our joints are meant to move, the moment you stop movement, things go south, things start deteriorating, things start, you know, getting tight, things start hurting. And our body's really efficient at figuring out, you know, do you need this? If I don't use it, I lose it. I always use that lame joke, but it's really, really true when it comes to working with any kind of joint. So the shoulder car is one of those things that's a global effect, not only for the joint, but other things. So if you think about what allows the shoulder to move, not only like the rotator cuff and everything else, um, it has a global effect on other parts of the body. So we go back to the T-spine. So T-spine starts moving better, neck starts moving better, shoulder starts feeling better. And now you can kind of see how things kind of spill out because again, we're not, you know, singular um, beings of, you know, my hip does this, so I just have to do hip exercises. It's, I do a hip exercise, but I'm also influencing other things. So with the uh, T-spine, a lot of times it's gonna influence other things, and I'll show you this more as we go through this joint by joint approach. Um, so for mobility, the shoulder car is kind of the king exercise that I always like to use, but a lot of times people do it incorrectly. So a lot of times it's just repetition, like just get that shoulder moving. Um, for stability, this is where kettlebells come into play. Any like, If you've seen any of my posts, you'll notice that I always use kettlebells. So the biggest thing that I like to use uh, kettlebells for is shoulder health. So if you think about it, I went to go grab, you know, a um, heavy dumbbell. Automatically in your head, you're like, oh shit, this is heavy. I don't want to injure myself. So I'm going to grip it as tight as possible. And the moment you grip something super, super tight, that shoulder likes to centrate and get into um, a better position. And when I think about, you know, joint centration, I think about safety. So anytime I'm doing a stability exercise, I'm thinking about um, safety. Um, so the grip is kind of one of those triggers to tell the rest of your body to be in a centrated position. And I really, really um, like using kettlebells because most of the time if you use a heavy enough kettlebell to do say a farmer carry the handles a lot thicker than your typical dumbbell so now I got to work a little bit harder and that just bulletproofs my whole theory and idea behind that joint centration um, and then I also for um, grip stuff is any kind of bottoms up 
kettlebell stuff, it kind of almost tricks the body to stabilize a little bit more thinking that it's a lot heavier and it needs more stability. So a lot of times when I work with patients, I end up using only like an eight or 10 kilo kettlebell in a bottoms up position. And that just like people feel right away. They're like, oh shit, like this is really, really helping my shoulder. Um, the other thing that uh, I want to bring up here is a lot of times when I do my carries, I'm not super close because I'm most bang for my buck, bunk, bang for my buck um, exercise. So when I think about the shoulder, I'm thinking about what he can do. So that's why when I do a farm recurring, not only am I squeezing tight to get that joint centration, but I'm also um, abducting. So I'm taking my arm that's holding the kettlebell out to the side to about 20 degrees and then externally rotating it about 45 degrees to also get every single rotator cuff muscle um, activated during that time. So if you look at what the rotator cuff muscles are, what they do, now you can start influencing certain exercises with those same um, actions that those muscles are responsible for. And in my head, I'm like, that's what functional training is. If you can understand the anatomy, if you can understand the motions and actions a muscle can do and you start influencing your training with that then you're like a lot further ahead than most people because most people just do what the person beside them is doing or they stick to what they know it's like i'm going to sit on this machine and just do whatever thing it tells me to and sometimes that's not the best concept so shoulder cars kettlebells for um building up the shoulder both for mobility and stability. So the next thing I want to get into is lumbar spine. So we're going to, we're going to hit the big players first. So let's go like this. So the lumbar spine, it needs to be a stable joint. Why? If you look at, again, the biomechanics of what a lumbar spine can do, when it comes to rotation, like we did with um, the thoracic spine, it has about 13 to 15 degrees of rotation. So if you think about any rotational sport or just in life in general that requires you to rotate, if you don't have enough thoracic mobility, where is your body going to most likely get it from? Lumbar spine. A lot of times, and again, this I'm going to bring up the lumbar spine again, how it gets influenced by other regions of the body. When the lumbar spine has to make up for it, that's not designed to do a lot of mobility, you get low back pain, right? And if you look at the statistics right now, it's really staggering how many people have experienced low back pain and a lot of times you check thoracic mobility and the person doesn't have it they end up having low back pain or a host of other stuff going on and kind of going back to this whole like global effect how other things influence going back to the shoulder actually when the shoulder starts moving better the neck also can take a little break so because the lumbar spine is stable and the neck is also stable, 
in order for them to stay doing their jobs, other parts of the body need to be um, mobile. So if the T-spine and shoulder can do their job by staying mobile, the neck doesn't have to stay tight and it can do its job to be stable. So again, joints influence so many different things. Um, so for the lumbar spine, when it comes to creating stability based on exercises, um, things like, let's make a list. Let's do it this way. Just, just core. I'm just gonna, gonna do this. Core. And when I say core, you wanna think of what our spines are designed to do. They are designed to fight flexion, extension, anti-rotation, and anti-lateral flexion. Again, going back to like, if I know my anatomy and I know what the parts of the meat wagon that's here are designed to do, then my training can get influenced by it. So when it comes to the core with what I just said, if I know that I can influence the lumbar spine by being stable, by going by that logic, things like an anti-rotation press and all their variations, chops and lifts, single arm farmer carries, side planks, front planks, anything that fights off those motions of rotation, um, anti-lateral flexion, um, flexion and extension, I'm in the right realm of keeping my lumbar um, spine stable. Crunches do not fall into this, right? You're just going into repetitive flexion. That's not fighting flexion, if that makes sense. So if I created an exercise where I had to fight flexion, then 100% that would help. But if I'm just going into repetitive flexion, then I'm not doing myself any favors. And if you even look at like EMG studies of uh, muscle activation for core exercises, like crunches is a pretty low end exercise when it comes to activation. And a lot of people who do crunches in their head, they're like, oh, if I do crunches, my abs are gonna pop out. But you're choosing an exercise that's actually not the greatest when it comes to muscle activation. So why are you wasting your time? So if you follow proper core training, and I could probably do another video in here once. And again, I apologize for the mess because like we just moved in. So the moment I get this place up and running, I can probably start doing a little bit more of these kind of videos where I kind of explain and also demonstrate um, exercises. So functional core, quotation, functional core, that will help the lumbar spine. Now, this is where we start having a little bit more fun. Um, I'm gonna draw another circle. It's gonna kind of overlap. And we are drawing a circle onto the hips. And again, here we go again. For the hips, it's gonna be both a mobile joint and a stable joint. Let me tell you why. When you look at the hip, not only does it need to be mobile, it also needs to be able to stabilize you. So if you think of anything single leg you do, running, lunging, deadlifts, fucking walking, 
your hip lateral hip stabilizers especially need to be able to stabilize so then you don't go into weird like side to side hip things and then your hips are popping this way and start getting hip pain so in order for the hip to stabilize a couple things need to happen one you can train it and this is where i love so if i had to do to do one of these just stable exercises everything half kneel. So the reason why I like the half kneel position to create stability exercises is that it eliminates some other factors. So a lot of times when people are like, oh, I need more stability. I'm just gonna like be on one leg. You're on the right path, but there's so many other things that influence being on one leg, like your feet, your ankle, and your knee. So let's eliminate those factors and strictly work in just hip stability. So when I get someone in a half kneel position, now because of this half kneel position, my hip is the only thing that's gonna stabilize me. Especially if I take this front leg and bring it into midline, now I need to stabilize a lot more, right? So a lot of times when I train clients and people fall into buckets, like general population, tend to need all of all the stuff that I'm already talking about, they need all of this. So for me, I kind of work on the inside out, right? So I would look at T-spine, lumbar, and hips first, and then branch out to the other things. Because again, if we go back to this idea that it magnifies globally, if I attack those three things, it's gonna influence other stuff, and now I can get more specific, right? So that being said, when I train in half kneel, I can do so many things. And again, this, this is how it's gonna spill over. If I am in a half kneel position, and now I'm doing an anti-rotational uh, cable press, band press, whatever it is, I am now working hip stability, core stability, that's gonna help my lumbar stay stable. I've already hit two birds with one stone, right? This is where my whole idea of functional training comes into play. If I know I can choose an exercise that's not gonna just work one thing, and again, our bodies work as one unit, obviously if I pick an exercise that's a lot more um, influential on other parts of the body, then I'm on the right path, right? So not only does that help, I'm also gonna influence other things. So another example of that is, if I have um, a half kneeling position, again, working hip stability and low back stability in this position, and I say do a cable face pull, I am now influencing my T-spine and my shoulders. So since we use the example of us all sitting, and I'm doing a face pull to promote a little bit more postural restoration in that kind of planar motion. Now my T-spine is going to function a little bit better being in that centered position. I'm also strengthening up all those weak postural muscles to kind of pull me out of there. So now I'm going to influence the health of my T-spine, the health of my shoulder. Now my neck's going to start feeling better. My hip is getting better stability work. My low back is being stable. Like. Do you see how this kind of just magnifies and just goes on 
this is why exercise selection is so important and this is why I think when I train clients, they're like, I've never felt so much better in my life since I started training with you or like in the clinic setting when I start working with patients and they end up becoming my client, right? They think they're doing a rehab, but when you look at a, a paper, they're like, this is just a workout, but their exercise is chosen based on their um, needs for their body. Whew, that's a lot. Okay. So when in doubt, just half kneel everything and you'll be on the right path. Now, let's look at um, mobility stuff and king of exercises for hip mobility, hip cars. Again, just like the shoulder, where are we, right? Hip cars. Again, we are going through all the motions a hip can do. You continue doing that, the articulation improves, the integrity of the joint improves, things start moving better, and here's the other thing. Like I said, when the T-spine, I, I don't wanna think I even brought this up yet. Um, when the, yeah, I did. So the, when the T-spine is restricted for mobility, the lumbar spine has to pick up the slack. When the T-spine um, moves better, the low back can relieve its duty and you know clear up any kind of aches and pains. The hip is the same thing. If I don't have enough mobility in the hip, the lumbar spine is gonna take over. I find so many times when I give more hip mobility to a patient or client, low back pain goes away. So now imagine if I start doing hip cars, shoulder cars, and a shit ton of T-spine mobility, low back pain tends to go away. Here's the next thing. What if I start choosing exercises in this core section that's gonna give me more stability in that low back? Now low back pain goes away. This is how this whole concept, joint by joint, plays in with how I program for my clients for them to move and feel better. Like This is like the blueprint of how we should be training, right? So. Again, I can go into so many different exercises when it comes to mobility for the hips, but honestly, if you started doing hip cars, things are already gonna start moving and feeling better. I find that a lot of times people are always looking for new exercises, like it's going to fix everything that they haven't thought of already, but really it's like, just move your fucking hip, move your fucking shoulder, Move your fucking T-spine, Think good things will happen. Just keep keep doing it, keep doing, keep doing it. Now, where do I wanna go from here? Because we haven't hit some joints. Um, I feel like I should do this like live so that people can ask questions. Um, let's go to the knee joint. Now, the knee joint, if you're going by this concept, the knee needs to be stable. But also, I will make the argument that the knee also needs to be mobile. And I'll explain that in a minute. Um, if you look at the human body, if the knee does not have proper stability, um, shitty things tend to happen. 
when this knee joint can't stabilize, you'll get things like anterior knee pain, lateral knee pain, medial knee pain, because the knee can't stabilize and stay in a neutral position. A lot of times, going back to this whole magnifying um, principle, the hip influences what the knee does. If the hip is not moving properly, the knee is usually fucked. So a lot of times when patients come in with knee pain, we're looking at their hip and also looking at their ankle, which we're gonna get into in a second. So when the hip is moving better, the knee is moving better. The hip will tell what the knee should do. So an example of that is if my lateral hip stabilizers are not moving properly or function properly, the knee will start going into weird positions. If I'm lunging and running, walking, I'm getting forces into my knee that should not be there. So there isn't like, in my mind, a knee stability exercise. It's more so work on hip stability in order for the knee to stay stable. So now I wanna move on to my whole idea of um, the knee being a mobile joint. I'm talking a lot, this is good. Um, if you look at the knee joint, we have our tibia that runs through ankle to knee. So if I, again, this goes back to like my kin stretch. I teach knee cars because I find a lot of people don't understand the concept that your knee can move. So if I drive my toes towards my face and I think of rotating to the right to external rotation, my tibia is moving external rotation right now, right? If I don't have enough tibial rotation, if I deadlift, squat, lunge, walk, run, things are not gonna feel good. I find a lot of times when people have knee pain and I check their tibial rotation back and forth, they don't have a lot of it. So this is my argument that the knee should be somewhat of a mobile joint when it comes to tibial rotation. And knee cars is one of the ways to do it. Also, you can do some pails and rails and influence some tissue change, which could be a whole nother video. So I'm not gonna get into that because I kind of want to speed this up because last time I checked on this guy, we are, damn, 39 minutes. Okay. Um, we're gonna go into the ankle. Ankle joint needs to be mobile. Why? Because our ankles can move in so many different positions. And if you wanted to really, really nitpick, our ankle can also pronate, supinate, go back and forth. They're kind of on this little teeter-totter as well as so many other rotations, right? So when we lose mobility at the ankle, it influences everything up the chain, right? So if the ankle is super stiff, now the knee is gonna have to take over some of the work and the hip, and then that's where we end up with some more kind of knee pain and crap like that. So make sure the ankle is always super mobile. For example, for me, my left ankle has less dorsiflexion than my right, and that tends to mess up when I lunge, run, sometimes when I do um, kind of single leg work, I can notice a big difference. Um, 
So mobility-wise, any kind of extension, flexion, just rotational exercises, so ankle cars tend to work really, really well. Now I'm gonna draw another circle around the foot. I'm getting kind of crazy. So the foot itself, not the ankle, the foot needs to be a stable joint. So when I look at the foot, with all those intrinsic muscles around the foot to help you stabilize for a gait needs to be stable. A lot of times when I see the foot not being stable, it makes a huge global impact on the ankle, the knee, the hip and low back. The foot is such an under serviced piece of machinery, especially the arch. Um, when those things clear up, a lot of this stuff works a lot better. Um, one thing that I will say, I'm gonna leave it for later because we're gonna move on because I know I've been talking a lot. Let's now look at the elbow joint. And, man, this is looking, so the elbow joint. Kind of like the knee, it needs to be stable, but in my mind, it needs to also be mobile. Elbow obviously needs to be stable, so when you do push-ups, a bench press, pulling or anything, like the elbow's not flopping all over the place because it's super mobile, it just needs to be stable. And I will go back to specific exercises, um, but one thing will be grip training. But the reason why I think it needs to be mobile if you go into elbows being tight against your rib cage, hands up to the side, and you go into pronation and supination, like it needs that rotation back and forth. And a lot of times, if you imagine, if you're a big fan of bench pressing and you realize that your pronation stops where it should go all the way almost parallel to the ground if you're in this position, you going onto a fixed axis by cranking your arms into that position and going down with weight, it's probably not going to feel really good on the forearm. So elbow cars, just to go through different rotational movements for the elbow is going to be where you live and breathe. A lot of people don't think about the elbow being somewhat mobile, like there's just enough mobility that it needs in order to function properly, to be stable, to influence other stuff. So here's another example. The elbow, if it does not have enough mobility, the shoulder now has to work a little bit more. And then it's kind of constant battle between shoulder and elbow of pain and tightness and crap like that. So a lot of times when not only say you get the shoulder moving better, the elbow could freeze up a little bit, but then if you get the elbow also moving a little better, the shoulder <laughs> again gets a little bit better. Now, let's get into the wrist. Where do I, I'm gonna go the other way. Let's cross over here. So the wrist needs to be a mobile joint. We're almost there. So things like wrist cars is going to help a lot. I find that when you get the wrist moving a lot better, 
elbow starts moving, uh, moving and feeling better, shoulder starts moving and feeling better, T-spine and neck. Like you can see how this global effect, how everything influences another thing is a huge, huge, huge thing to pay attention to. Now, the thing I wanted to bring up that I kept saying I'll bring it up later is one exercise that I always make a joke that if someone got really, really, really good at that, it will just fucking fix everything. The single leg deadlift with an offset load or contralateral load. Now let's think about it. A single leg deadlift, what does it require? Adequate foot stability, adequate knee stability, hip stability and mobility, low back stability, T-spine, um, mobility. It also needs grip strength, which is gonna influence elbow, um, elbow stability, sorry. It's also gonna influence shoulder stability. It's also gonna influence neck stability. So we've hit so many different points of this joint by joint system from one exercise. So my joke is that if I could get someone single leg deadlifting like 50 pounds, all their issues would be go like gone. Like, and, and demonstrate like effectiveness during the exercise. Like they're gonna fix a lot of stuff. So I spoke for a very long time. This was a lot, a lot to take in, but it is definitely something people need to pay attention to. I am going to take the camera and bring it a little bit closer so then you can see my little drawing. Um, so again, thank you guys for listening and watching. If you watch this, you guys are amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If you have any questions about this, feel free to reach out. And that's it for me. Until next time, you guys. What is up, my podcast listeners? This is your host, Rafael Matuszewski. And I'm excited for this episode because we're going to do another compilation uh, styled episode where we go over programming for fat loss. Now, I would say 99% of my clients that I train um, all, no matter what they're kind of going through, they're all looking for fat loss because no matter what, even if it's an injury, you're still hoping that you're going to look better, feel better. And I would say majority of all my clients are dealing with some sort of injury, either really simple low back pain that they just need to get more hip mobility and T-spine mobility to someone who just had a hip replacement and they're looking to um, get out of pain, start moving again. But regardless of where they're at, they're all looking for some sort of aesthetic change. Because like, let's be a little, you know, more realistic. Um, no matter what your goal is, you are, you know, subconsciously always kind of looking for that. So I wanted to bring these two episodes where I literally do a whiteboard session of like my thought process and show you exactly how I put together a program. And even in the videos, I'll like mention that, you know, on paper, on the, um, um, the whiteboard, it looks very, very, very simple. But when put into practice, there is the moment where you actually you know, get through the warm up and start implementing 
um, the sets of each exercise, you feel like you're actually working quite hard. And I wanted to bring this uh, episode together because a lot of times people are looking for programs that look so complicated with like, you know, your first set, you're doing four reps really, really heavy. And then your second set, you're going to do 12. And then on your third set, you're going to do eight because of X, Y, and Z. And like, you know what? Yeah, those programs work. But for most people, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Like, do you really think that the average Joe and Jane that um, have a full-time job and kids their body is going to be able to tell the difference of doing, you know, four exercises in a superset, three sets of eight compared to like one set, four reps, the next set is 12 and whatever complicated thing that you find online, probably not. What you need is simplicity, consistency, and patience. That's all it is. So I'm really excited to bring this episode together to kind of showcase that And I literally write out an entire program. So like, if you're looking for something new, this is your chance to steal it, use it and see how you feel. But to kind of, again, do a selfish plug for my book and I've made a small little video on it before, um, probably this past week of how the assessment kind of plays in. And I think I might do, a whiteboard session where someone was injured, how I would, you know, implement um, different training based on what I see in the assessment. But to do, again, the selfish plug for my book, The Ironclad Body Training System Volume 2, um, your program should always dictate your anatomy. You know, like someone who's really, really tall, probably not going to be the best for them to be back squatting. Someone that has a history of sitting at their desk for the last 20 years probably don't need to do overhead pressing. Someone with arthritic knees, probably not the best idea to do walking lunges. Like it sounds silly when you say it out loud, but I've seen this time and time again in my career where people will go to the gym do whatever their friend's doing, doing whatever the class is doing if they're in a group kind of setting and they will feel pain and continue doing it. And then they get surprised on why, I don't know, a couple weeks down the road, a month goes down the road and their knee hurts. It's like you need to be doing things that your body's capable of and then work on the things that you want to be able to do. Right. So I always say when I do an assessment in person or in line, like, yeah, maybe your shoulder mobility is not there to do overhead pressing right now, but we're going to do everything in my power to make sure that you can press overhead eventually. Right. So I think that's where a lot of people kind of get lost when seeing success with weight loss and fat loss is that they're not following a program that's actually designed for them. And we need to kind of stop ending this whole, like, I'm going to go Google fat loss workout. And it's like, some random cookie cutter program, like pay somebody to actually program for you, buy my book so you can actually get um, somewhat of a personalized program that works for you and your anatomy. So without me rambling for the next 20 minutes, I'm going to get right into this compilation video of 
fat loss programming. Here we go. Today, we are actually gonna go over some programming because the biggest thing that I've seen um, through Instagram, Facebook, that I um, get in messages and comments is kind of on the lines of exercise selection, training, and a lot of times when I get into conversations with my listeners and viewers, it's all about um, their programming. And a lot of times people are following stuff that has been kind of outdated or they're going back to your typical like bodybuilding split that doesn't really necessarily give you um, the best uh, outcomes when it comes to training. And you know, if you've been following my stuff for a while, I'm more so on the functional side. And I put that in air quotes and um, kind of leaning towards uh, exercises that prevent any kind of injury that may happen. And a good example of that is a lot of times when people are pressing overhead, people tend to get sore shoulders and, you know, simply being that when you're a general population person, you most likely have some sort of job where you are sitting down for long periods of time and your shoulder mobility, thoracic mobility is probably not the best it should be at. And now you are placing strength over dysfunction and lo and behold, we have injury. So that being said, I'm going to literally demonstrate um, how I program and I'm thinking of kind of creating almost like this linear path of progression. And I can show you how I can take the most simplest program for a beginner that focuses on the foundations and how I can kind of stack on top of the skill set that someone would develop following that phase for say four to six weeks. And then any person that I see, no matter where their level's at, I can scale it up or down really, really quickly. And I think this is going to help many, many people out there when it comes to figuring out um, a program that's gonna keep them healthy and more days in the gym. And that means more um, successful outcomes when it comes to your weight loss goals, fat loss goals, strength, whatever it is. Um, so we're gonna get started. So. Let's assume that I have somebody brand new. I've taken them through an assessment and there's nothing like, holy shit, your knee is really messed up and there's stuff that we need you to go figure out with a therapist. Let's just say you're a typical person that has some aches and pains, that is the typical person that sits at a desk all day and when I took you through an assessment, there's going to be certain things that I'm going to attack, most likely shoulder mobility, T-spine mobility, and hip mobility for this program. So how I like to structure my workouts, I was trying to put my cap on and I could not do it. Um, I follow the same kind of, um, I, mean, I really hate this ring thing here. It's terrible. Angle? Yeah, it's just like it's reflecting. Um, the angle of the thing. What do you mean the angle? The angle the thing differently. Oh, I see what you mean. That. It kind of solves it. Now the, th the ring is a little bit further, but now I have more 
room. So if I like wrote there, okay, cool, 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 cool. Um, so that being said, um, I follow the same programming style that uh, Alan and Rachel Cosgrove at Results Fitness utilize. And when it comes to general population programming for fat loss and strength, they are the number one resource that I follow. So I'm gonna literally steal exactly the same things that they do. And I've been doing it for the last eight years of my career and people have been moving better, feeling better, losing weight. So not, let's not try to reinvent the wheel. Um, so what we're going to do is kind of have this first section. I really hope that's not nearly as big as I should be writing, my bad. So first exercise. We're going to label this as A1. Yeah, you can see it. <laughs> um, what I'll do with every single person is a dead bug. And then I like to couple that with a half kneeling anti-rotation press. So, the reasoning behind this little set, we always start off with kind of like a core series, and one, it kind of almost preps your body for all the other stuff that's going to happen, because we all know that if our core is not strong enough, or isn't firing or activating, then the rest of the exercises that we choose tend to suck. So in this case, we are kind of priming the body. So after we've done the warm up, and I maybe that could be another episode that I could get into. Um, after we do the warm up, now this is kind of like our priming um, first set of just two exercises back to back. And the reason why I always choose the dead bug is it's one of those vital exercises, especially a core exercise that teaches an individual how to stabilize the body while in a dynamic movement pattern. So it works primarily for rotary stability, anti-extension. If you look at human beings, we walk in an opposite hand and opposite leg kind of pattern and the dead bug tends to um, do the same kind of concept. And my wife just rolled over some more um, markers but does the black one work better oh i think the black is going to be so much better especially for you guys um so rotary spilly super 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 important and this also gives me the opportunity to teach someone how to utilize a diaphragmic breath and i find that so many people forget that um sequence and kind of foundational pattern because a lot of gym bros or people that are uh, fitness enthusiasts if you ask them how do you create um, tension in your body or how do you turn on your core or how do you create a bracing strategy when you deadlift or squat i never get a good answer and most of the time people just look at me like i'm speaking a different language so when i start off with every single person in a dead bug, I have an opportunity to teach that person how to diaphragmically breathe, how to brace properly, and be more in tune with their body. 
And that's probably the biggest struggle for anyone starting exercise is they have no idea how to control and move their body. And they almost become like this awkward being in the gym when they're trying to do a new exercise. So literally the dead bug kind of sets the tone for every bit of exercise that we're about to do and lays down like the true foundation because if you can't properly brace during a dead bug there's no chance in hell that you're going to be properly able to brace for something as advanced as a barbell deadlift and you're going to lead to a lot of injury so that's why i put in the dead bug which is so, so crucial. And it can be so many different variations. So say I have a brand new person, never been into a gym in their life, has never exercised, and they're starting like negative zero, like as, like as low as possible. Um, maybe their dead bug variation will just be breathing. Maybe it's the dead bug position with just the legs at 90 degrees while they're holding their um, torso and breathing into their hands. Maybe it's, you know, holding their hands out with the legs up in the uh, dead bug position and they're just dropping their heel one at a time because maybe extending the, with the full leg and full arm actually hurts the lower back and they just don't have the prerequisites to actually hold that threshold for intra-abdominal pressure. So the dead bug is kind of, again, almost that scaling idea where it might be just breathing or it might be the full dead bug. So it really depends on the person. Um, from there, I like to couple that with something called a half kneeling anti-rotation press or pow-off press, whatever you want to say. The reason behind that, so this is a anti-rotation um, core exercise. And the reason why I like doing it in a half kneel, and I've said this in blogs, I've said this in previous episodes, but anytime you're in a half kneel, you are teaching your body how to stabilize through its hip complex in conjunction with their so-called core. And if I can get an exercise where it kind of kills two birds with one stone, like why not? And a lot of times too, it's kind of a precursor to any kind of lunge movement. So when you're in a half kneel, it literally resembles you in a lunge position at the bottom. And many times when I get someone brand new, a body weight split squat or lunge can smoke them. So another way to increase their leg strength is being in that half kneel position and how to set up for this. And I have tutorials on my YouTube page. So look up anything half kneel tutorial. It will showcase why it's so important. But the cliff notes is when you drive that first leg, closer to your midline, now you're challenging your body to stabilize. Again, you're feeding information to your nervous system on how to stabilize, activate the core, create tension, bracing strategy, everything. So we're taking this whole core section here in um, our program to one, teach our body how it needs to stabilize for more dynamic movements that we're gonna cover later in this uh, workout. So now you can see that there's two different body positions, you lying in a supine position and then you in an upright half kneeling position. And again, if you go into the kind of um, the developmental stages of a baby to toddler walking, like you're literally resetting your nervous system on how to get into uh, a gait cycle when you're in a half kneel position. But that's a whole nother episode that I could get into and I can talk a lot about. So let's move on. Um, 
Typically here, I will do, you know, two to, oh, this marker is kind of not the greatest. Two to three sets. Hopefully you can see that. That's oh, like, just terrible. Don't worry about it. It says two to three uh, sets. Again, you can go eight to 10 reps or so. My uh, dog Misty is kind of grumpy. I think I'm talking too loud. She's right in front of us. Um, so next section, this is what I consider to kind of like the meat and potatoes of the workout. Oh yeah, it looks a lot clearer. Um, I always teach people as a foundational pattern. I was about to put down binge for some reason. Hip hinge, not hip binge. Thinking about food, that's why. All right, so hip hinge and something called TRX rows. So in this section, is usually the priority um, of the workout for me in my mind. And I'm gonna star this. Every single person, I need to teach them how to hip hinge, AKA how to deadlift. So the biggest thing, and this is so apparent in the clinic setting, is anytime I get a low back pain patient, every single person I've seen have yet to discover this and maybe someone else in the industry who works in a clinic setting can prove me wrong, but every single low back patient has no idea how to push their hips back into a deadlift position. It just does not compute with how their body moves and they tend to fall into that typical um, overly like flexion pattern. And you can do a small mini assessment. If you just ask someone to touch their toes with their knees locked out, you'll find very quickly if someone's always using their lumbar spine to reach down for things when they just bend at their spine and they don't push their hips back, whereas a typical toe touch to pass that assessment, you'll see people push their hips back as they reach uh, down to their toes. And usually those are the people who have better body awareness and have maybe played a sport or whatever it is. Um, but that being said, all low back people who've had pain, they need to learn how to hip hinge and even, um, people that are athletic who go through like a low back flare up, it almost changes the whole kind of mechanism and sequence of how they're actually gonna reach down for something. So learning the hip hinge is so, so vital for so many other things moving up. So how I teach the hip hinge, um, I've been using a dowel quite a bit and I'm not talking about the one where you have it on your low back, your shoulder blades and your head and you're kind of doing that bowing thing. I actually get them at a deadlift position but from the top down and teaching them one, what we just learned in our first set when it comes to creating tension, um, holding on to the dowel, thinking of breaking it apart and engaging your core and sliding the um, dowel down to around your kneecap depth and then driving up through the glutes and squeezing. Now, doing that over and over and over again will kind of now create a new movement behavior 
and that's going to help a lot as we move down into um, other exercises because I want this person to eventually deadlift heavy. And every single person that I take through this kind of foundational program, within four months they are deadlifting at least with a trap bar or a barbell deadlift because we've worked this pattern so well that it's so solid that when I place them under load, their body understands what to do. It's to resist it. And again, our spines are designed to resist movement. So if I am prepping it up here with these core exercises to teach how my spine needs to stabilize, now when I go into my deadlift uh, position of any kind of variation, my body's like, all right, I already know what to do and I can challenge it. Going from there, I like to go into TRX rows or some sort of rowing variation. But I think the T-Rex row is one of those ones that teaches a lot to someone new to exercise, is learning how to stack their joints in proper positions, joint centration, grip strength, um, how to retract the scaps, neck stability, all those things are covered in this one exercise. And I really like coupling it back and forth. And now if you really think about it, this is how I kind of go into my creative process when I'm training somebody is that if I have someone brand new that's never learned how to hip hinge and I need to teach them and constantly reinforce it, I'm going to throw in other exercises that reinforces it. We already covered that this dead bug and half kneeling anti-rotation press is reinforcing the hip hinge indirectly because I'm teaching my person in front of me how to engage their core and stabilize their spine. And now with the T-Rex row, if you think about it, when you're doing a heavy deadlift, you need to be in a joint-centrated position, meaning your shoulders are packed, you're hiding your armpits and squeezing your lats. You are creating as much tension on your posterior chain as possible because you have a weight in front of you that needs to come off the floor. The TRX row does exactly that. If you think of digging your heels into the ground, you're activating your hamstrings, your glutes, you're driving your hips forward, you're squeezing the handles as hard as possible to ensure your glenohumeral joint is packed and sucked back. The TRX row is literally like a deadlift, if you really think about it. And now I'm just reinforcing it in a different pattern, right? This is where my creativity comes out when I want to ensure that people become like bulletproof, ironclad bodies, AKA selfish plug for my new book coming out this summer, hopefully. But again, it all depends on the person. Say that hip hinge looks perfect. I might within like a week or two load it to like a sumo deadlift, whatever it is, but that's how it is. Um, we're going to go into the next section and rep sets again, like two to three times. And I always give a gauge of like eight to 12 reps. And I'll explain that in a second. So we're gonna go into the next section. So the first exercise is a single arm uh, dumbbell, if I can spell properly. Floor press. And then split squats. Row 
space pull. Wow, I can't spell. All right, so in this section, it's a nice little strength set. And I'll explain um, why I chose these exercises. And I'm going to bring this down a little bit so you can see at the bottom. That's not going down. Now it's going down. Perfect. Um, and I can't write straight, obviously, either. Um, the first one, if I know that this individual is someone that's sitting in their desk, taking them onto a bench where they probably don't have enough thoracic extension to lay down somewhat in a neutral position, it's gonna crank on their lumbar spine and guaranteed you probably have had a um, scenario where you've laid down on the bench and you're, oh, hi, miss, what are you, what are you doing? where the low back just doesn't feel the greatest and sometimes you have to move your feet in different positions or maybe put your feet on the bench and now you're misty what did you have something to say <laughs> um now your lumbar spine is not feeling the greatest so i always go into a floor press um the second thing is that oh and i forgot to write with glue bridge The second reason, doing a floor press. Most people who are sitting, oh, hi. All right, so we're gonna do it this way. Um, most people that are sitting in a desk all day, they probably don't have good shoulder mobility. So if I had someone with those rounded shoulders like I've been always talking about in my podcast, and now I place them on a bench where I have to take a dumbbell and come down, this shoulder is going to start popping forward and a lot of people get anterior shoulder pain. So if I can prevent that from happening as much as possible while strengthening up all that musculature involved with any kind of shoulder and chest movement, then it's like I'm thinking way ahead already. Um, so the nice thing with floor presses is that you physically have the floor stopping you from going beyond your controlled range of motion or any kind of positions that may um make the shoulder be put in a more vulnerable uh, vulnerable position so now that i'm going just to 90 i now know that every single rep i'm controlled i don't have to worry about any kind of aches or pains or twinges or flare-ups or whatever it is so we have that going for us now the other thing that i added and wrote terribly is a glute bridge so i want people to be in a um, glute bridge for an extended period of time to again reinforce the deadlift position everyone's posterior uh, chain is so weak in the general population that a lot of times when it comes to glute bridges or any kind of like exercise that involves um, glutes hamstrings or things like that things don't fire the way they should and a lot of people whoa geez miss you scared me um, well, you can hear something outside, can't you? Um, a lot of people tend to feel things in their low back and hamstrings and glutes kind of get the worst of it. So that being said, if I can reinforce that posterior through uh, the hip hinge, the glute bridge, the TRX rows, I'm just throwing more fuel to the fire that's going to make this per person successful and strong. So that's why I do a single arm dumbbell dumbbell 
floor press with a glute bridge and this last section of the workout. The next thing that we're gonna do is split squats. And again, it can be body weight, dumbbell, goblet, whatever you wanna do. But again, split squats for a brand new person, I'm not adding a lunge in there just yet. They have not earned the right or prerequisite to add a locomotion there, not yet. We wanna build a good foundational base, so why not get the person really strong in a split squat position? And it leaves a little room for error, because again, with a lunge, there's so many more variables to it. You're adding a little bit more balance to it. You're adding the variance of where the back foot is going to go, and a lot of times, people don't even have the ankle mobility or the big toe um, mobility that's required to get into a lunge position. So you'll notice that a lot of people when they do lunges, like their foot almost, almost like caves in because they don't have enough toe extension and ankle dorsiflexion to get into that position. So it kind of goes all over the place. So if I can slow it down and really focus on that fundamental pattern of just a split squat, boom, I'm solid. Lastly, but not least, is a cable rope face pull. Now, I love face pulls. It works all those postural muscles that so many of us need because again, we're all here all freaking day. So if I can get people to retract back and work all those small little muscles over and over and over again, then that's where I'm gonna see a lot of success. And again, if you think about a barbell deadlift, a lot of people, when they try to get into those near maximal loads, what happens is that those postural muscles kind of collapse forward. So they almost look like they have a rounded uh, upper back. But if I can, again, from the get-go, start everyone off with um, exercise that reinforces that you know rhomboid, mid-trap, low-trap area to be strong, when we're gonna place ourselves under high loads, our body is prepped. It knows what's, uh, what it needs to be done to kind of get there. So that's why I have the rope face pull. And again, I'll have two to four sets in this section. And again, I do eight to 12 reps. And the reason why, you will read so many different um, programming books where they have like really specific um, rep ranges and things like that. But for the general population, I personally think it does not matter that if you are doing six reps, you're not just training for like brute strength and power compared to like eight to 12 reps where it's just purely hypertrophy or 12 to 15 reps is freaking endurance. When it comes to someone who's brand new to exercise or someone that's been training only for a couple of years, their training age is so young that their body's not gonna know the difference between, between those rep ranges. If you have someone who's been training for like 10 years consistently nonstop, hell yes, rep ranges like will matter. But in this case, when we're just working with the general population that wants to move, feel better, lose weight and gain a little bit of muscle, whatever rep range you fucking throw on the board or on your Excel spreadsheet or whatever app you're using is still going to help the person reach their goals. So I like using eight to 12 because it's kind of in that in, in between. And I don't go into like six or less with someone new or even someone with um, that's been with me less than six months because people don't know how to load their body just yet. And they tend to use weights that are way too light and they don't get to those near maximal loads like I want them to. So an eight to 12 rep, here's how I kind of um, teach my client 
how to self-regulate volume. So say they're doing their single arm dumbbell floor press with the glute bridge and they have a 20 pound dumbbell. I tell them aim for eight, but say as you get to eight reps, it feels really easy. Then I tell them go up to 12. Say they get to 12 and they're like, honestly, it was kind of still easy. I'm like, great, go to a 25 pound dumbbell and now aim for eight. Maybe eight was just gonna be perfect. Maybe jumping to a 25, you're like, fuck, that is heavy. There's no rule that says that you have to go to eight. You can do seven, you can do six, you can do four. Who fucking cares? And I know I just contradicted myself, but at that point where they're actually struggling, they're getting to that near maximal load, which is the whole point of me um, getting at earlier. But that's how I teach people how to self-regulate when it comes to um, choices of weight or um, even when it comes to like say a day where they had no sleep I tell them like okay go do two sets and just eight reps for everything uh, with the weights that you did last time and it'll still be a lot lower volume compared to uh, what they would usually do but overall like we have covered a lot of stuff here when it comes to creating a uh, program where um, everyone needs to kind of start with. And literally this is almost like exactly what I do with a brand new person that sees me. And I've been doing similarly this exact layout for the last six, seven years and people have been getting strong, they're moving better, feeling better and things like that. And then we progress them along these lines of exercise I've chosen. And I did not think this was gonna take this long, so I think I'm gonna do a part two of it because I did promise to show you how to scale it up for someone who is um, a little bit more advanced or say someone did this for four to six weeks and they're ready to progress. So, And we are going to pick off, well, pick up off where we left off. Um, where I saved our program that I would literally give to um, any client that walks through the door and we kind of did a baseline on what I would give to someone who didn't really have any kind of major issues or any kind of um, major injuries or any kind of contradictions that they shouldn't be training. So today I'm gonna show you how I'm gonna progress this individual and if we have time, I'll show you kind of the next foundational progressions that everyone should be doing and where maybe even like a lateralization might come into play, which is basically a progressed exercise, but maybe two exercises might be around the same difficulty and that would be called like a lateralization. Um, so let's kind of go over what we did last time so we broke up into three different sets and I know my ring light thing like looks like a fucking flying donut right now on the board but um, writing up top which is very hard to see what we have is a dead bug and a half kneeling uh, anti-rotation press and then the second set we're going into a hip hinge with TRX rows and then the last set we're going into a single arm dumbbell floor press with a glute bridge and then we have split squats and then we have the cable rope face pull now i'm going to show you now while writing over there um, what we are going to progress this individual to 
And the nice thing is that my ring light is not uh, on the side that we're gonna be, uh, what am I doing? On the side that we're gonna be throwing in the exercises and hopefully my board doesn't fall over and be super embarrassing. So how I'm gonna progress the dead bug, I wanna add some sort of like external load to it. So where I usually go, to one piggyback off of the, um, what's it called, the pattern, I wanna add a little bit more tension to it, a little bit more stability to it, whatever word you wanna use. And simply what I'm gonna do is a band resisted dead bug. So how I do this. I will take a standard super band um, or assisted pull-up band, whatever you want to call it, um, and loop it around like a squat rack, uh, cable machine, pillar, whatever it is, and have the individual almost like in a pullover position where they're, one, getting a little bit of serratus uh, anterior acti activity, a little bit of core engagement, and constant tension to learn again. Once again, remember when we looked at all of these, they kind of paint the bigger picture of what we need to work on, and a lot of them repeat the same concept. So if I want this individual to learn how to deadlift properly, my dead bug is my first kind of line of defense of teaching them intra-abdominal pressure. Now I need to um, enhance that, kind of magnify it at a larger scale, because when we get into heavier loads, if I haven't taught the person how to create that tension that's going to help protect their spine, then I'm kind of fucked. So if I have a band-resisted dead bug where I have constant tension um, in it and I'm still kind of piggybacking off the um, previous exercise, so again, all of this would be done for four weeks, and so maybe I'll write that up top here, four weeks. And that's how I kind of program, is each phase is four weeks. That was a terrible line, by the way. Um, and I wanna piggyback off those um, exercises that I've already started with. And in that case, it's just a small little change. So now I'm not teaching um, that person a brand new movement and kind of start from square one. In this case, it's like you already have the foundational movement. Now let's add a little bit more to it, a little bit more complexity to it, right? It's just like you learning your ABCs and now let's put you know three letters together to um, make a word. Um, so now moving on to the half kneel anti-rotation press, what I like to do in this situation is, again, stay in a half kneeling position and do a cable lift. So if you are familiar with um, Gray Cook and the FMS model, um, the biggest thing that they kind of prescribe is chops and lifts. And a lift is simply getting into the half kneel position. Um, I can either just take the cable handle or the rope attachment and go from my hip chest to a 45. And now I'm still working my hip stability, core stability, but now going on more so a you know diagonal pattern where we're gonna slowly start transitioning to more rotational stuff. 
which is going to come up later in our programming. So now I basically took this first two exercises, learned the foundational patterns of both of them, and now just added a little bit more to it, right? I built the foundation on the patterns, and now let's challenge them. And same kind of rule applies. Let's do um, two to three sets, eight to 10 each. Like it doesn't have to be rocket science. And then we're gonna move into um, this next set. So if you can, if you can see it from home, we have the hip hinge and TRX rows. So what I like to do here is now get into a dumbbell sumo deadlift. And let me tell you why. So if I had somebody brand new to exercise, or a low back patient, or someone who has no idea what the difference between a squat and deadlift is, I am going to take the four weeks that we spent learning how to literally push your hips back and learn that I am not squatting, I'm gonna be hinging, I'm using my hips, to now loading that pattern. And the big thing too is like, you don't have to do it in the sumo stance. I just prefer to, because I find that people pick that um, hinge pattern a little bit easier than going into con uh, conventional deadlift where I just place the dumbbell between the feet and their toes are straight, their feet are like shoulder width apart, hip width apart, whatever it is, and they kind of almost fall into um, almost like a Romanian deadlift pattern. But I just find that the sumo stance makes it a lot easier for them to find that hinge. They feel it a little bit more. And most people that are training nowadays, especially now that we're sitting at home all day on Zoom calls, those hip flexors and just hip um, muscles in general um, are super, super, super tight. So getting into a traditional deadlift um, position is going to kind of not get you the result you want. And I find a lot of people end up extending not through their hips when they come up through the deadlift, they kind of extend through their lumbar spine, which we don't want. Um, so that's why I kind of go with the sumo deadlift instead. Um, what I also do, depending on the person, it doesn't have to be from the floor. Um, if someone had some real uh, mobility restrictions, that's when we can um, you know, place like a yoga block underneath the um, dumbbell. And to kind of visualize a little bit more, I would have the dumbbell upright. And if you think of traditional dumbbells, you know, they're pretty lengthy this way. So now I don't traditionally need to um, always elevate the deadlift. And that's a whole nother episode I can get into if you should be deadlifting off the floor or not. Um, but in this case, the dumbbell sumo uh, deadlift tends to work really, really well. If you have a lot of mobility restrictions, that's when I would elevate it. And then with the TRX rows, I honestly keep it the same. And the reason behind that is usually when someone starts off, they're kind of at like a 45 degree angle and they're not going that low because they're still learning how to um, do the movement and kind of figure out how I'm supposed to pull my body um, up towards the handles and back down. So I do this another four weeks, but now what I tell them to do is like, I want you to do as many reps as possible. If you get to 12, you're not low enough. So then they kind of learn how to self-regulate um, that way. And what happens is 
they end up going to a point like a depth where they're only getting like six to eight and that's where i see most change is when they finally find that feeling of like that's how it's supposed to feel when i'm working and i feel like a lot of people don't ever get that right off the bat they kind of just move through the motions and kind of stay where they feel comfortable and it's kind of a way to introduce being uncomfortable in a training session because when i start in those first four weeks you know some people break a sweat but they're not like huffing and puffing and dying or like pushing themselves because they don't know how to do that yet and this is kind of an intro how to do that and you know, one of the safest ways is to do it by pulling your own body weight, at least in my opinion, like using a, an exercise like the TRX row. Um, and then depending on the person, because I look at this section kind of as like the meat and potatoes of your programming. These, this is a kind of like the most important um, section. So here I would actually do anywhere from like three to five rounds or five sets, and that was a terrible five. Um, again, always dependent on the person, um, where they're at. Traditionally, like I haven't had a person who started their fifth week with me and they're doing five rounds, they're usually doing just three to four. Um, so now let's go into this next section, the single arm dumbbell floor, uh, floor press with glute bridge. Now, depending on the person, I like to keep this as is. So if I had to do this, I would do another four weeks of it. And let me tell you why. Usually with a brand new person, they haven't still figured out like what their weight is to be a challenging weight just yet. It's kind of like the TRX row. Now that they have the movement pattern, now they can challenge it a little bit more. Because with the single arm dumbbell floor press, when I get someone new, say it's a female like they are kind of in the range of like using a 10 pound dumbbell to a 20 pound dumbbell and if i have a dude they're anywhere from like 30 to 40 pounds and they still haven't like reached that like maybe 70 to 80 percent of what they can actually do so i like to keep it as is or say they are progressing nicely everything's falling in line they're pushing uh weight already this is where I'll go into a single leg glue bridge to make it a little bit more challenging. But if not, it's fine to just keep it the same and just go up and wait a little bit more. Now from split squats, where I like to go to is reverse lunges. The reason why is now that we have a basic foundational pattern of the split squat and we know how to utilize the muscles involved in that um, lunge position now let's add locomotion right the reason why i never start reverse lunges off the bat is that most people don't know how to coordinate that movement without other stuff kind of influencing it and um i love to focus on the real basics getting really good at them and then adding a layer of um, instability like a reverse lunge because at one point you know you're on two feet and that one leg needs to go back to uh, lunge and he needs to stabilize on the toe come back down and then come back up without kind of falling all over the place and I can't remember if I said anything about how I would load it 
So again, with split squats, say it's a brand new person, never set foot in the gym, we could be just doing body weight. Um, if it's a person that can handle their own body weight, then I can give them two dumbbells by their uh, side. Um, or a goblet position, whatever they prefer. Same thing with the reverse lunges when I get there. Now, the rope face pull. What I like to do here. I like to do some sort of single arm row. And let me tell you why. We are designed to press, pull, walk, run with one leg and one arm at a time. The moment that we start crawling, we're going opposite arm, opposite leg. If you look at research of you know, strengthening one limb over the other, there's that carryover effect. So I want to now influence that benefit of doing unilateral training because our bodies thrive off of that compared to using two at the same time. So with the rope baseball in the beginning, you know, I have higher payoff getting people, you know, learning how to activate those rhomboids, mid traps, low traps, whatever postural muscles there are compared to starting off with a single arm row where they're probably more dominant with like doing that pattern of shrugging and then rowing. Whereas with the rope face pull, they're literally thinking of setting those um, traps down while pulling. Now let's go challenge it to, with a, some sort of single arm row variation. So I can be a dumbbell row, a cable single arm row. And usually depending on the person, if I do a dumbbell row and I see a lot of this shrugging motion and I can't correct it and say next week I can't correct it, that's where I would go back to um, say a half kneeling position with a cable row. I think that would work really, really well. And that's essentially how I would progress the first four weeks um, to another four week phase where we built a solid foundation and at this point, this is where I see a lot of people uh, progress very, very nicely. Now, let's just say um, if I was a person that's been training with me for a year and they've, you know, did everything, every single progression, how would this look if I had someone quite fit, um, their injury-free, no issues whatsoever. How would I program for someone a little bit more advanced? And I think that's what a lot of people want to see is how I could take this most basic uh, program and scale it. So the interesting thing is I can literally have, um, so I'm going to erase all this, someone brand new, new to exercise, um, that's never set foot in the gym and then have someone that is, actually I'm just gonna erase that. Um, that is a little bit more advanced and they can follow the same template. And this is what I learned early on in my uh, career. And I'm gonna make this into say one year. So say someone's training with me for a year and I have an advanced program for them. Um, so say I have someone brand new and actually, sorry, when I was a coach, uh, when I first started, I learned this whole concept of progressions and regressions to a point where I could create 
a template of someone who is the most athletic person and basically dumb it down, not dumb it down, but regress it to a point where a brand new person can follow the same, tam uh, same template and still get the benefit out of it. So say this person that is advanced is gonna follow the exact same template. So with the dead bug, what I would do is a cable pullover dead bug. For those who don't know, imagine a cable machine behind me. I take the rope attachment, bring it in front. Every time I extend my leg into a dead bug, I go into a pullover, and then as I drive my knee, I drive the arms forward, which is a very challenging exercise. Now we get to the half-kneeling anti-rotation press. This is where I would do a standing AR anti-rotation press with front raise. So now I go from a half kneeling position to a standing position because by that time I have the necessary prerequisites to get there and I'm adding a front raise. So if you think of a pal-off press and now I'm bringing it up, I have a lot more of this stuff activating in order for me not to collapse over. So I'm not only focusing on fighting rotation, as I'm getting up to here, I'm also fighting anti-lateral flexion, which makes it a two, like, a two punch really, really quick to the face if you don't stabilize. So now I took a really simple concept and made it very difficult for someone to get challenged. Now, let's go into our next section where, how are we on time? We're good. Um, the hip hinge, nice and simple. Let's go barbell, deadlift, right? Very, very, very simple. T-Rex rows, let's go in eccentric, T-Rex inverted row. Sorry for all the abbreviations. So the barbell deadlift, I can do like say three to five reps. The eccentric TRX inverted row. Having your heels say on a 18 inch box um, or a bench and then having um, the tempo of the exercise where I'm pulling nice and quick up to the top and I'm slowly lowering myself for like four Mississippis all the way to full extension and then again drive up and again I would do as many reps as possible. Those two together are going to light people up pretty quickly and then this that's a whole nother thing that we didn't even uh, get into is that when I have a brand new person going through here we don't really rest because there's not enough stuff taxing enough to make you feel like oh shit I need to take a breather. It's very like I'm going to go back to back all the way through and finish the hour. Whereas by the time I get here, you're going to want to take at least 30 seconds between. And especially here, if you're loading the deadlift enough and doing max uh, reps on the T-Rex inverted row, you're going to want to take at least two minutes. And that's where we're actually challenging our body. And that's kind of similar to that example I had earlier about, you know, my next phase taking the, just a typical T-Rex row and getting the person to do as many reps as possible to feel how it is to be working at a rate where you're actually uh, pushing yourself a little bit. So 
this whole phase is actually pushing that person to, you know, not failure, but near failure. Now, let's look at this single arm dumbbell floor press. A simple thing that I can do here is a single arm bench press, but terrible writing because it's too far off to the side, but um, I like getting into a single arm um, glute bridge dumbbell press. So imagine having the bench like traditionally behind you and lying on your back, but having only your shoulders on top. So if similar to if you were doing a hip thrust, but you're on the edge of the bench where just your head is and you're driving your hips up and uh, back down like a hip, uh, hip thrust, but you're gonna stay up there the entire time and then doing a dumbbell single arm press where you have to fight your body uh, weight and the weight of the dumbbell falling off to the side. So you're challenging not only your glutes, but your whole freaking system. And that is a very challenging exercise. Split squats, easy one to throw in kill anybody is a rear foot elevated split squat. For those who don't know, Bulgarian split squats are traditionally known as it, but a rear foot elevated split squat. Again, not a complicated exercise like you being on a fucking BOSU ball and like lights being turned off and on while someone throws firecrackers at you. Um, but you can load it quite easily to make it challenging. Now, the rope face pull. This is where I would maybe do a cable side plank row. Sorry for the terrible writing, but side plank, cable machine front doing a single arm row. So I'm getting that uh, rowing pattern. I'm also throwing an extra exercise in there as a side plank to have a more well-rounded uh, workout that targets the full body and hits every single thing that we need to progress and challenge as we get stronger. So I literally took the most simplest program and followed the same template for someone who's advanced. These two people would not know that doing that uh, workout at the same time but in my head and in my mind I'm like they're doing the same program right and this is the beauty of programming for people and makes it so much easier for any new coach out there um, trying to create programs for their clients and rather than sitting there like okay I need to come up with something new I need to think of this this and this rather than having just a template and just copying it and then okay my person can't press overhead i'm going to take this out instead my person has a bad big right toe i'm going to take out split squats and give them rear foot la split squats because it's going to be flat on a bench you, like things like that it's very plug and play and it saves you quite a bit of um headache down the road and this is where you know i find that people see the best results and like I said in my first video, I stole my programming from Results Fitness uh, as because they are one of the best gyms in the world when it comes to training general population. And I followed this 
for like the last eight years of my career, I've not seen anyone get injured. I've not seen anyone, you know, say like the program was too easy. I have not heard any kind of complaints. People are just like, wow, like it looks really simple on paper. And like, literally, if you look at it, this is like, you're like, oh, this doesn't look hard. But when you put into practice, knowing what the person um, needs, then they're gonna feel it in the hour, right? So again, if you're watching this at home and you do this program, maybe it's not gonna feel um, challenging to you, but if I took you through an assessment and then had to take this template, um, I could easily, um, you know, change it a little bit to make it more specific to you. This is just a general example. Um, you know, I know a couple questions I'm going to get really soon is why do you do two exercises here, two here, and three here? Why can't you do it any different? You can. You can do one exercise in the beginning if you want and then rest and then do it again. You can do fucking five exercises in the second section and just do two at the end. It doesn't matter, right? But I categorized this in the beginning to make it simple. You know, sometimes with my more experienced clients, I will do three exercises of three sets, but maybe do some sort of conditioning where the three exercises at top are, you know, uh, a goblet squat, a TRX row, and push-ups, and they do three reps of each one for five minutes straight and see how many rounds you can get in, rest for three minutes, repeat it one more time, and then move on to the next one, right? There, there's so many different ways of how to program, and, um, there's no like right or wrong, but what I will say is the moment you learn the rules of programming and there's so many good books out there and resources online of like where programming started, how it benefits and it literally, there's so much research on it, follow that path first and then that's when you can start breaking rules of anything else that you've learned. But um, that's essentially how I do it. That's where I see the most success. I see people, you know, having more days in the gym, less, you know, days where they're just like, oh, I need to take a few days off because I've been really, really sore or my leg hurts or some weird stuff like that. But um, hopefully that was helpful. Um, so I had a couple questions um, over Instagram about my last couple episodes going into like programming for fat loss. And um, people wanted to see like, how would I create like an actual program? So in my last two videos, I kind of went over how, you know, what exercises I would do for um, someone that was brand new and then how I would eventually progress it. And then somebody was asking like, how would that actually look like if I had like, you know, this month workout A, B, and C, and how I would structure everything. So I'm literally gonna lay out like a one month worth of programming here if someone was training three days a week. And I will showcase um, what exercises are put where, why I emphasize X, Y, and Z, and things like that. Um, and feel free to literally use this in your uh, workouts and you know steal it and see how you feel so I'm gonna create um, somewhat of a like an intermediate um, program here 
And this would be for someone who has no pain, no issues whatsoever with overhead mobility or stuff like that. Just say this person is ready to go. And regardless, maybe they've had some injuries in the past and they're just trying to, you know, bulletproof their body, become more of an ironclad body, AKA my new book is gonna be coming out pretty soon. Um, so we're gonna get started. And similar to my other videos, we're gonna start with two exercises at the top being our core section to get things ready. So over at workout A, we are going to do two exercises. So we are gonna do a band resisted dead bug. If any of these exercises you have no idea what they are, literally go into my YouTube channel and you can just search it and you'll have it along with a tutorial. So boom, you're ready. Um, number two, what we're gonna do here is a simple front plank. So with the front plank, we're gonna go either 30 to 45 seconds and the dead bug, I'm gonna go eight each side, and we're gonna do this three times. And what we're gonna do is, rather than going through all workout A, I'm gonna do workout B and C, the first section, to make sure, one, this is where a lot of people get their training um, terrible, is they don't um, look at, am I overloading a certain movement pathway or plane of motion, am I overloading my legs in a certain way and we're going to look at that how to create a balanced program so you don't overdo like your chest or your glutes or things like that because that can throw into some sort of imbalances or asymmetries i don't like using that word but you'll have something more developed than something else and that'll lead to issues down the road so um, which I'm gonna kind of go on a tangent a little bit, a little sidetracked here. Um, I had a person come in to the clinic and this individual was constantly getting like lateral hip pain anytime they did uh, lunges, step ups, things like that. And um, I was trying to figure out like, okay, why? Like, you know, obviously it's inflamed, some sort of tendinopathy, but like, what are they doing in their program? And this person's a fit individual, like, really really fit and I was like tell me more about your programming and this individual will primarily focus on legs and would do a glute specific uh, workout three days a week and on the other days where they would focus on more upper body stuff they would still do some like glute stuff like your traditional like what you see on Instagram glute stuff uh, to overload it and I was like would it be possible to do what most guys do in the gym where they constantly do say bench press or chest exercises where you know their pec minor just gets so tight that they start rounding the shoulders forward and they're kind of imbalanced, right? And they don't have enough uh, back exercises to combat the amount of pressing. I'm like, can you do the same thing with um, glute exercises? So I was thinking, okay, well maybe if you know, glute max, glute meat is being overworked. What is being kind of neglected? And I was just thinking, probably your adductors. They serve 
a purpose not only to you know bring your leg across the midline but also stabilizing your hip and if you're overloading your lateral um, glute muscles and your hip extenders I'm pretty sure your adductors are probably not getting enough love so I took this individual into a 90-90 position like I do in my kin stretch classes and told her to do a simple, um, what's it called? Um, a lift off for external rotation. And if you don't know what this is, again, hit my YouTube page and search it up. Um, but essentially it activates your adductors along with some hip flexion and could barely do it. Like it was, it was a struggle. So I'm like, okay, here we go. Here's that imbalance that I was talking about before. And when we got this patient to focus on more adductor specific work, that lateral hip pain kind of went away. So, you know, this can happen anywhere. If you're loading one area of your body more and more and more and more, eventually it can get into overuse. It can serve um, a different purpose eventually and just cause more um, harm than good. So it's really, really important that when you are following a program or you know you start exercising, you're doing classes, whatever it is, and you're really consistent, is to see if you are overworking something. Because most classes, they're like, I'm gonna hit the legs hard and your core hard and kind of forget everything about everything else. And then you're kind of left with overuse injuries. But Let's go back over here to workout B. So we are on A1 and A2. Here is where I'm going to put in a bird dog cable row. And then here, just a simple side plank. Can't properly spell plank for some reason. 30 seconds. And let's do this eight each side three times. All right, so now we can start talking about how I'm changing stuff up and making a thoughtful, purposeful program. So here we have a dead bug. We are in a, well, a band resistant dead bug, in a supine position working a rotary stability you know, opposite arm, opposite leg pattern. Now, if I had workout B, it would be kind of defeating the purpose to do another like dead bug-like exercise or any kind of like supine ab exercise uh, that you can think of. So it's like, why not do um, kind of a complement to it? So a bird dog, which is literally an upside down dead bug, but focusing a little bit more shoulder stability, low back stability, and then challenging it a little bit more with the single arm cable row adds a little bit more of a dynamic, but now I'm kind of complementing these two movement patterns that are very similar, but just now in a prone position compared to a supine position. You know, over here we have a front plank where we're fighting um, anti-extension, and then we have a side plank here to fight lateral uh, flexion. And, you know, now these two are complementing quite nicely. Now, this is where I really like programming because now that I have three days, it's like, okay, sweet. I can now really work on really specific things for the person. And usually what I'll do here is I'll do a half kneel anti-rotation press. Again, check my YouTube page for all these things if you're going to follow this program. 
And then here is where I would love to do some sort of um, tall kneeling. Um, kettlebell, halo. So we now have, now let's do the three sets and eight to 10, oops, eight to 10 each. So we have our core section, all three workouts. So the reason why I am doing a um, half kneeling anti-rotation press, we have some anti-rotation for our core, hip stability, and the halo is one we're working a little bit of shoulder stability too, which a lot of people need, and in a tall kneeling position. So, you know, half kneel, tall kneel positions, super, super, super vital when it comes to developing um, better posture, um, better body awareness, and better stability through that hip junction. So why not kind of double down on both half kneel and tall kneel on the same day, right? Um, so now we have this beautifully orchestrated core section across the board on each day that's going to literally hit everything we need. Now, if I had to, here is like, this is something like, it would be like a specific thing for somebody. And um, you can throw in other things, like we haven't hit um, hip flexion, so you can do like a mountain climber here, feet in the TRX, doing like atomic crunches, whatever it is. But, you know, this is where it's like, okay, I have this person and I wanna like just put as much in as possible and this is all I can do. But we can double up on some sort of core movements later on if needed. But we're gonna come over here into our next section. And remember this next section is what I call kind of like the meat and potatoes where I want like the most important um, things to kind of come after. And what we're gonna do is a double kettlebell, single leg, deadlift. And we're gonna do six on each side at a heavy, heavy weight. Then from there, what we're going to do is just a simple, simple, simple um, single arm cable row. Just standing, nothing too crazy. And let's do eight to 10 each side. And this is where I like to go like anywhere from three to five sets. So before I kind of go into why I'm doing this, we're gonna go into our next two. And for workout B, what we're gonna do is a uh, dumbbell front squat. And again, we're gonna go six reps to make it heavy. And then here, we're gonna go TRX inverted row. We're gonna do MRAP. As many reps as possible. Again, three to five rounds. And then way over here. What we're gonna add in, whoops. Goblet. 
landmine. Reverse lunge. And then here, chin-ups. And again, three to five times. Here we're gonna do six, here. Oops, and wrap. Sorry for all the writing. Okay, let's now go over why I chose all these exercises. So, the single leg deadlift. Again, you know that I love single leg deadlifts, but hip dominant exercise in a unilateral stance. Dumbbell front squat. So we're gonna have two dumbbells up top here. Um, knee dominant bilateral exercise. And then um, goblet landmine reverse lunge. Um, actually, sorry, I didn't want this to be, I have mine, okay, here. Not a goblet, because we already loaded that pattern. See, this is, this is, this is why you gotta look at this kind of stuff. Um, just an offset. Offset, landmine, reverse lunge. So now we have a, again, um, sorry, I'm blanking, um, a unilateral um, knee dominant exercise, not a knee dominant, hip dominant exercise, because I consider reverse lunge a hip dominant because you're kind of driving your hips back. So for, in my experience for general population, um, posteriorly we are terribly weak and we need to double down on that compared to working exercises that work our quads kind of like the front squad. But I put that in there to still, you know, take the time to develop that pattern rather than doing, I'm just gonna be doing deadlift-like exercises. But look at the different loading patterns too. This is where um, my kind of like creativity comes in. So I have a double kettlebell single leg deadlift. So that's two dumbbells on the side. I have now a front squat where I have two dumbbells up front. And now I have an offset load with a landmine where I'm holding the barbell at the bottom and then reverse lunging to the same side. So I have different loading patterns now for my leg exercises up top, which again, people don't pay attention to. So imagine, you know, average person is like, I'm going to barbell deadlift, barbell deadlift, barbell deadlift on each day or barbell deadlift, bench press and back squat. It's like, okay, yes, the bars are in different places for different exercises, but you're still not challenging, say, like a single arm press for instead of your bench press, a single leg deadlift with, you know, one giant dumbbell or something like that. Like the loading patterns need to change in order for your body not to kind of fall in the same pathways over and over and over again. Um, so those loading patterns are why I chose them. Um, so over here, as you can see, there's quite a bit of um, pulling. Again, going back to my whole posterior thing, people need more posterior strength. So I have a single arm cable row, a T-Rex inverted row, and chin-ups. Again, think about loading patterns. So I have a um, unilateral horizontal row. I have a uh, bilateral horizontal row, and now I have a um, bilateral 
vertical row. So I'm hitting all different ways of pulling exercises to, again, not overload one. Like, I could easily just like, oh, I'm just going to go chin-ups, close grip pull-down, lap pull-down. It's literally the same across the board, and I'm going to overload that pattern and those muscle fibers. Why not change things up, right? And not overload something, overuse things like that. And again, three to five rounds, depending on what week I am. Am I, if I'm at week four and I'm trying to like go for it, I'm hitting five sets. In the beginning, I can even do two to three here. So now let's move on to the next section here. So we're gonna go at four exercise set. All right, so we're going to do a half kneel, single arm, shoulder press. And you know, I'm gonna go across the board so you see what I'm gonna do here. I'm gonna do a single arm, oops, dumbbell, bench press. Just as you thought that I was not a fan of pressing, I'm still <laughs> throwing that in there. Two-handed, landmine, press. So, we have a half kneeling, single arm shoulder press. So I have a unilateral uh, vertical press, single arm dumbbell bench press. Now I have a unilateral uh, horizontal press. And now, C, uh, oh, not C2, this should be C1. And then my last day here, I have a two-handed landmine press, which you could probably classify as a bilateral vertical press, even though it's at a 45 degree angle, like we're aiming for overhead. But again, look at the pattern. All presses, but all different movement pathways, planes of motion, and things like that to not overload one of the other. And this is where Stuff like this helps a lot when it comes from injury prevention. So now let's get into the next bit. Here, we're gonna go. Kettlebell bat wings. Again, if you don't know what kettlebell bat wings are, check my YouTube channel. Half kneel single arm, close grip, pull down, and cable, rope, base pull. All right, let's look at this again. Kettlebell bat wings, a um, bilateral, I would call it horizontal row, again, 45 degree angle on the bench, a half kneeling, single arm, close grip pull downs. So for that one, think of um, 
you know, cable machine at the very, very top, you're in a half kneeling position and pulling into a close position, and then cable rope face pull. Again, all pulling exercises, all different planes of motion, all different movement pathways to, again, not overload the other. So I could have easily been like, I'm doing a dumbbell row here. I'm going to do a single arm row like I did earlier, and I want to do like a two-handed row. Like, it's, there's not a lot of um, thought process behind that. So now let's get into our third exercise. So here, what I'm going to do is walking lunges, dumbbells, kettlebells, whatever. Dumbbell lateral lunges. Stability ball, hand curls. All right, again, all leg exercises, all different, all working, all um, things that most people miss. So walking lunges, we have a knee dominant exercise, that's single leg. We have dumbbell lateral lunges. Again, think about if you are watching this, listening to this, when was the last time you did a lateral lunge or anything lateral for your legs. It's probably been a while. You've probably been doing the squats, deadlifts, and like reverse lunges. And then stability ball hamstring curls. Again, um, posterior work needs to be done. And something like that will cover those bases that we need. So again, you see this pattern, like I'm constantly working every single movement pathway I can think of. And when I write all this down, I'm constantly like, okay, have I hit everything that I need to? And this is why I love writing programs for three days a week, because I can usually cover all my bases if needed. Um, so last thing here, usually the last one, again, like I covered a lot. Sometimes this is this like extra stuff that the person needs, right? So on why am I skipping numbers here this is number three so here I'm gonna put in band pull-aparts here I'm going to put in I already know what I want to put in here I'm skipping All right, so band pull-aparts, kettlebell armbar, stability ball saw. When I have usually four exercises in a set, that fourth exercise, I'm constantly thinking of like, okay, what does this individual need before, like after, okay, we're working on core stability, we're working on better upper body strength and stuff like that, like more specific stuff to the person. So if we know that most people um, need more posterior work, band pull parts, great postural exercise, kettlebell armbar, everybody needs um, some shoulder stability. 
and say this person was one of those people that um, has weak shoulders and had shoulder issues in the past, kettlebell armbar falls perfectly. Stability ball saw. Um, one reason why I put that in there is I already have the stability ball in there and it's just gonna be an easy transition to make the person move a little faster, just going back and forth. But also with this one, what I'm looking at too is you know, most people, again, general population, when you ask them, okay, what do you want to work on your program? My abs. And really what they're saying is like, I want to lose fat around my belly. So sometimes when it comes to like buy-in as a trainer to work with someone, you need to kind of give exercises that's going to make them feel like they're like getting a program that's designed for their one thing that they really want, which is abs or a, a smaller stomach. So creating a exercise combo where something like the saw where you're fighting anti-extension and when you get to those end ranges like you're really going to feel your abs go you're going to be like that's what they're going to remember you know like usually the last bit of exercise are the ones that are going to tire people out and if i put the saw at the very end that's what they're going to remember like holy shit that workout was really hard you killed my abs but when you really look at it there's not really any hardcore specific ab exercises other than that Right? So it comes to like buy-in. So as a coach, I kind of learned that over the years that you know, last exercise can be like somewhat of a filler exercise, but stuff that the person really, really needs. But uh, overall, like we have this beautifully orchestrated program. Like this is like, be like go take a freaking like screenshot and like start doing this in the gym. Like you have four weeks laid out for you. And you know, if you're an average intermediate gym goer this is going to work beautifully um if some are not feeling great don't try to force yourself doing this but this is how my creative mind goes when i'm trying to create a program and i've been programming like this like i said in my other two episodes for a very long time and i have never had any client injure themselves while training you know, pull something while they're training or anything like that, or we're too sore or anything. Um, so I kind of pride myself that my programming that I've learned over the years from so many other great coaches in the industry is kind of like, I wouldn't say the Holy Grail, but kind of like, you know, the secret to finally seeing success in the gym, in life, in whatever, you know, goal you may have. So